he was watching it and he got to watch my car explode. The issue with something like that happening is everyone in a huge radius has heard it. You know, if they're ready for us to be coming down, they now know where we are. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is in my family. We weren't out there to take country. We were out there to lose it. That was their job. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to humans quite often. Do I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, but what can you do for your country? The volunteer for service was, in effect, to put your life on the line. I'm Alex Lloyd. And welcome to Life on the Line. Today's podcast is the second of our video podcasts. You can listen to this episode in all the usual places, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. And you can also watch the video interview on our website and on our YouTube channel, www.youtube.com slash lifeonthelinepodcast. This conversation is between 2nd Commando Regiment veteran Damien Tomlinson and Thistle Productions co-founder Angus Horden. Damien lost both his legs in Afghanistan due to an improvised explosive device in 2009. He's gone on to become a motivational speaker, author, actor, golfer, and more. They spoke in Angus's office in Sydney's North Shore. I'm Angus Horden, speaking today with Damien Tomlinson. Damien, welcome to Life on the Line. Thanks for having me, mate. I appreciate it. I appreciate what you guys do when it comes to speaking to veterans. I've seen, I think, personally experienced how much impact it can have being able to share your experiences and stories with, with the public of Australia. And having listened to your podcast before, it's a, it's an honour to be sitting in the seat, mate. Thanks for thanks for having us. Oh, well, thank you, Damien. Um, it sort of makes it a bit easy for us when we've got great guys and girls, you know, to share their stories. Um, let's kick off with your childhood, mate. Okay. Yeah, which which bit of the childhood would you like to go to first? Well, let, let's talk about um, sort of where you grew up. You know, what what sort of drove you? Uh, was there any military history in your in your childhood? And yeah, okay. Um, my my grandfather first was he was uh, one of the rats at Trebrook. He spent five years serving in World War Two, and that was always a it was always a big thing. You always knew when you were going to see Pop that he was he was in the war, and he was slowly starting to slow down from what I can remember. He passed when I think I was I was eight years old. Um, and as a kid, he was always he was a talented sportsman from what I hear. Like he was good. My my mum and my uncles are both great at golf and there's golf on the other side. The whole family's into it, which is kind of convenient with what's happened. But, um, yeah, the, I always sort of spoke about, you know, what he did. There was he, – he'd had a hat trick. You know, I remember he had a mounted ball in their house – that was one of those things that, you know, as a kid you sort of look at, but it's, it takes it takes me a while to sort of dig back to the memories. But that influenced me, I think, when I was young. You know, I played cricket following in his and my uncle's footsteps. And I grew up in a place called Terrigal on the Central Coast, an hour and a half north of Sydney. Yeah, absolutely. Somewhere around that, just a nice sleepy sort of coastal town with I think some of the good things and some of the coastal things that can work against it a little bit you know some things i've seen culturally that 
I like a lot better where I spent a lot of my time in the eastern suburbs of Sydney after I joined the military. You know, I really liked parts of the culture there that I didn't really see in the central coast, especially when I was young. And I um, I found myself always wanting to sort of push and do something different and kept sort of running into what I saw as dead ends. You know, I kept hitting places where, you know, I had, I had a reasonable amount of talent, but I found myself sort of sitting back on my hands because that was the more socially acceptable thing to do. You know, you don't want to you don't want to try as hard as you can or put as much effort in as you can to really hit that next level or do that next amazing thing because then you're going to be the guy who oh, he's the one who try he's doing that, you know what I mean? Like he you kind of be singled out as someone who actually wants to do the best that they can do. And um I think part of that influenced my decision. I was I'd had like a series of like bad choices looking back as I was finishing high school um, and just trying to then fitting into that crowd, you know, and sort of being happy to just put half an amount of effort in because that was what it was cool to do at the time. And I sort of found myself, I was looking around when I was 23 years old. I'd always played a decent level of cricket. Like I started off, I was playing first grade when I was like 16, something like that. So I'd always done reasonably well at it. But then to sort of look back and go, okay, so there's a guy I was really proud that I'd taken this guy's spot bat number three in the first grade squad. And I was like, wow, that's look at that. You've just you've got it sorted. And then I looked and he's he's like a vet. He's got his family sorted. He's got his life sorted. He's got all of these things pointing in a good direction. And when I was looking around at what I had and was moving towards, it really wasn't going, it wasn't drawing the same picture. You know, so I sort of started to ask, you know, what what now? What's like the what's the next step in my life? And I had I did what, you know, I guess kids kids do. I asked my parents. I went in and sort of spoke to spoke to them. I just always tell a story about what I did when I was tell uh, talking to my dad at the dinner table. I'm like, mate, like I started it off strong because you gotta, you know, I was like, Dad, you were right. You know, because he'd always told me, you know, you just you could do anything that you want to and you choose not to. And I just hate it. He really hated the underachiever in me. And um, I was like, you were right. Like, how do I how do I change path? And he's like, I wanted to be an architect. And I'm like, okay, why aren't you? He's like, because they told me at school I didn't have the right grades. I'm like, Dad, you, you got a master's degree in applied science. You did a degree in economics. Both of those are pretty mass heavy, right? And he's like, yeah, see, no one can tell you what you want to do. And that's where the conversation finished. It was literally the end of it. And I like it was probably the best bit of leadership that I've seen because it was effectively him saying you can make your own decision. I can't tell you what you want to do. You're basically coming to me with the problem of not wanting to, I guess, not wanting to have people tell you what you want to do, but then you're wanting me to tell you what I want you to do. You know, Just go out and find it. So I went in, went into mum's office uh, or both of their office at the time, looked at mum's computer because he worked in IT and I thought he can get me a, get me some sort of role in IT, look at what courses I can do. And as I was sitting in there, I'm scrolling through stuff on the computer and I look and there's a picture of my granddad. And he's sitting there with his, he was, it was a Ratchet Brook thing in 1983. So he's standing there and he's got, he's got this really cheeky little grin on that I just, there was something about it that was really powerful and it moved me and I was so proud. You know, I was so, so proud to be his grandson in that moment. I just looked at it and was like, that is awesome. And then 
with the pride of seeing that, it just after that, I was just so filled with this sense of shame. And you know, I was I think I was twenty three, and I thought that my life was over. I thought I've literally I've wasted my entire life. What am I doing? That was when I made the decision that probably changed everything. I went through the army website. I was like, maybe there's something here. Maybe there's just something that can steer me in, in a different direction. And I looked and they had this uh, incentive called the Special Forces DRS or Direct Recruitment Scheme. I looked at it and I sort of thought, I mean, I've kind of always, I've never seen a challenge as a challenge is too big. You know, a challenge is thing that's sort of the fun of it and never ever big enough type thing. It's it's one of those. And I, I looked at it and I just, from there, I sort of saw the polar opposite to the way that I'd been doing everything and it was something that fit in with my values, you know, something that fit in with the way that I saw things. You know, I was gonna, you were going to have to work hard to do it. You were going to have to sacrifice things to do it. It wasn't taking the easy road and there wasn't any quit in it. You know, I wasn't going to have to make excuses for why I was trying to work so hard. You know, I wasn't going to have to make any of those and the only person who I could be accountable to at that stage was me. You know, I was the one who ha- who was going to have to take it to that next level. So it changed everything about me, everything about the way that I work, the way that I operate, um, how I was down to waking up in the morning, everything. Like it just totally changed the way that I was about it as a person, you know, and I, I, got, a, I got good support from my family when I, was, when I was moving forward towards it. It was, yeah, it was, it was awesome and it's a decision and I'm just so glad that I made you know in the central coast there's how it felt and it probably isn't like this for everyone and I know I was a a lot more susceptible when I was young to paying attention to the wrong sort of ideas um but there's some there's things about the army and my choice to join it that I really love you know I'm a huge believer in the fact that you don't like blowing someone else's candle out doesn't make yours shine brighter even if there's only two of you in a in a box right if you're in an environment where you need to light up a field, every single person's candle burning as bright as humanly possible is your only way of achieving your objective. And that's the way I see the army and the way the culture is around the army. You know, you really want everyone, you want to nurture the man beside you to be better, you know, and to lift and elevate into a position. Sometimes it's got to be tough love. Sometimes there's only a particular way you can reach that person, but you need that person to be burning that that person's torch to be burning brighter. And I really like being in that environment, you know, because everyone recognises that the person next to them is trying to do things to better themselves for the betterment of everyone. And, and Damien, it's interesting that you, you know, instead of just going into the normal army, you went into the elite army. And not only that, you hadn't got an army background. So a lot of the guys have been in the system, but still it enabled you to come off Civvy Street and have a crack at the very top level and, and really drive yourself. Yeah, I mean, it was it was great. That there were parts of that culture that were difficult to, you know, I guess it's difficult to go into a culture like that, especially when training and actually being at the unit are two two completely different things. You know, there's a, then there's completely different mindsets into every aspect of your training because through the DRS system you do you do kapuka, and I think we were the last guys to only do. 49 days, I think we had about six weeks there. Then IETs, infantry training, which sort of like I think five months, some of that sort, and then advanced infantry training, which was another two months on top of that. 
and then you get panelled for selection. You go down, I think we had another two or three months before the selection course and then, yeah, ended up doing doing selection. But through that whole process, you're kind of going through the stages. And when, when I was at Kapuka, I remember I was so keen. I had this picture drawn in my mind of exactly how people would be. I think for the whole year before it, I had my hair cut into a flat top because I thought that's what people would be wearing. No one yeah, the crew in cut. the Australian Army has a flat top. Like, and if they do, people are hassling them. Mm. And I had seriously, I was running around like just love, just loving it, just thinking it was it was the greatest thing ever. But when I got there, I mean, I watched Full Metal Jacket probably every day for four months, just. Like I lived and breathed it. I immersed myself in everything that I thought you had to do to be a special forces soldier. That meant dealing without sleep, dealing with pain, just never stopping. You know, through the entire process, my mindset was if, like, my I'm not going to preempt my body giving up. I'm never, ever, ever going to do that. If I wake up after being carried out of a stretcher, that's when I've given it everything I've got. Until then, I'm going to keep going until that happens. Like it's... It can't physically or mentally break me. I'm just going to keep going. That's it. And the, I think the thing with that is you end up with such a good positive reinforcement cycle because each time you go past that point through your training and it starts at Kapuka when you're doing a, a 3K march with 28 kilos on, you know, it feels heavy as hell. It hurts. It's not comfortable, but, yeah, and you're dealing with it for the first time. It's just a different type of pain. You know, it's just a different type of hard but then when you get through that, you know, when you've got people, we had one guy who was a blubbering mess because, oh, my shoulder, and he heard a playing tennis or something like that. And he was, you know, you're kind of looking at it going, I don't think that he got the reward, which is at the end of it, which is that was something different, something I've never been through before that I now feel better for. Like I'm kind of keen to see how far I can stretch that one. How far can I keep going with it? And that reinforced that type of mindset, which then you just keep moving that finish line further and further away and then all of a sudden you're you're doing things that if you know if you gave the person that you were 12 months ago to do wouldn't have happened yeah not even a chance not even the chance to start it and because you're doing it with your mates and everyone's sharing it um you don't want to let them down yeah 100 100 you know and i'm i'm like wildly competitive at everything but one thing that really really inspires me is when people are at that point and then push through it you know, and they're not just pushing through it. They're partly, I guess they're pushing through it for them, but you see people are giving you that little bit of them, like every, everything that they've got. We did a high wire, like a, sorry, a, a roping course, and we're on, we're on the, the tower in Sydney. It's a seven-storey fireman's tower, and there was a guy who's nearly crying, like seriously nearly crying. He's that scared of heights. Are you rappelling front first down? No, we're back first at that stage. Yeah. Like that's a, He was just standing on the edge too. It's still pretty and daunting he was if you haven't terrified, done it. but you could see he's shaking, but he's just pushing mm. his body through it. Mm. You know, like honestly, it was. And by the third time, he was still hating it, but he could do it without shaking. Mm. And like, I there's there's nothing to me that's really more inspiring than watching someone break through that because you know we've all got fears. There's stuff that bothers all of us, and like I, I've never really had a problem with heights. You know, I guess mine's. Maybe being stuck underwater in murky water, I guess. I, I don't know. It's probably my imagination more than anything. But um, that that seeing people get whipped, I can't do that. That makes me go green. It's horrible. But um, the yeah, the watching someone go through that 
for everyone that's around them and to see that, I find that inspiring for a few reasons. One of them is that no one's telling that guy, saying, hold it together and get your job done. So I think no one's doing that. Everyone's just watching what he's doing and kind of hoping and speaking to him on, come on, let's let's do it. We're, we're here with you for that because you never know. Down the track, that could be you. Mm. You know, I mean, the last thing is someone's reaching up, you want to give them a wrist to grab, not be the person who's walking past them because <laughs> a day later you could be the guy reaching up and the last thing you want is everyone to be ignoring you. Mm. So, you know, and I think that I found those parts of – the training side of stuff it's just unique it's a different culture than i've seen in in different places and it creates a bond because you've instantly got that trust that say the person who you don't know who you've got a completely different background you could have grown up on opposite sides of australia doing completely different things you know we surfed a lot when we were young guys in the country don't really get there's no waves in the country are there you know what i mean like that and there's just different ways that you'll make your own fun when you're young we rode skateboards they probably raised dirt bikes or something you know, or horse horses, road. Yeah, yeah, or something like that, you know. But then there's people from completely different backgrounds that have a bond of the the common goal of going, okay, cool, we're both going through this. Every single person on your team is going to bring things they're great at and they're going to have things that they're not so great at. You know, a, a, in my mind, a good team member is someone who can identify those things that they do and I, I guess be that little bit, forgiving it's almost like accepting that at some stage regardless of the task there's going to be one guy on the team that fucks up it's going to happen you know i mean your ability to drop that and move past it is really defines your value as a team member and i liked that being reinforced through so many difficult arduous tasks things that were difficult and typically in the training cycle of things a lot of the stuff that you're given they're almost unachievable goals you know you it would take something nearly superhuman to get to the point that you have to be be at with the sandbags you're carrying and all your gear on after having no sleep, eating nothing in an hour and a half. It's near impossible. You know, for an Olympic athlete, it would be near impossible, let alone someone that's done the things that you have. But you're looking at guys who are all sweating the same, who are all in the same amount of pain, you know, that have all got blisters on their feet that is still stepping forward and going through it. You know, and at the end of it, you end up looking around and in that, that place that you're sitting, you see a group of guys who've just proven themselves to each other. You know, and it, it builds that sort of bond of just going, well, we don't want to, ideally we wouldn't want to do that again, but if we have to, there's no one I'd rather do it with than you guys. Like that's a different level. So when you started the, the course, how many of there were there originally and how many actually got into selection at the end? Oh, we... We started off with 45 or maybe more than that at Kapuka, sections of 11. The only lot, we lost like five or six guys just at Kapuka. Um, not their thing or a few different things. Some guys dropped out during IATs. I think probably maybe 35 of us got to the point where we could get panelled for selection, but different guys get injured and stuff like that. So it's not all getting removed from the, from the course until – until you hit selection. When you're at selection, then that's the time where, I mean, looking back at it, it's so much of it is the pressure that you put on yourself. You know what I mean? Like it's that, just that I'm being watched. Every single thing that I do could be the make or break moment when realistically they're sort of looking for one attribute. You know, how do you, how's your resilience in this stage? How do you respond when you're under pressure and that tide? How are you with the guys around you? 
at that stage. Like there's always a specific objective that they've got and that's really the only thing that they're looking at on a specific day, which you think it's absolutely everything that you're doing. So you kind of – it's a bit of a pressure cook. I mean, but like with time, pressure is a really interesting thing because – and I've done a fair bit of work with this. It's – pressure is entirely imagined. You know, it's literally imagined. You've only got a hundred percent of it. You've only got a hundred points of attention that you can give something, and if you can give it those hundred hundred percent of the points, that's when sports people talk about things being in slow motion. You're literally that focused on what's happening, and and doing the action that you're doing, that everything else just melts away. You know, you don't hear the thing that's in the background or something of that sort. Whereas, I mean, the the best way I've heard it described is, if you're doing a full jump, like say you're a standing jump and you get across, you got you jump five foot. And I say to you, okay, cool, well, let's do four and a half feet. You jump that, would you jump it for like five bucks? You'd say, yeah, okay, no worries. We mark it out on the floor, you do it. Then we go out, I go, okay, cool, you've done that. Let's go outside, let's do it again. And then there's a puddle. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, cool, yeah, I'll do it. You want another five bucks for that? Like, yeah, yeah, no worries, there it is. So you do it again. Then you're starting to laugh at me. You know, you've, you've made a bit of money, you're doing you're doing your thing, we're, we're moving forward. And then I'm like, okay, cool. Well, how about from that letterbox over to there? That's about, that's the same sort of distance. You know, it's only a three-foot drop. If you don't make it, the consequences aren't that bad. Do you want to do it? Okay, yeah, there's another five bucks. And you're like, okay, sweet, but you're starting to think about it. All of a sudden there's the injuries that will happen, there's the this, where will that happen? If I don't make it, what's everyone going to think of me? You've got all of these different factors that start start winding up until you do it. And I say, okay, cool, for double or nothing, the gap between those roofs with a four-story drop is the exact same distance. All of a sudden, that four foot becomes a long way. It becomes a really long way when all you have is the really simple action, which is a foot behind what you could, you know you're personally capable of. You know, And then going through that mindset of, okay, cool, how do I then take out that factor of pressure? What do I do? It's just as simple as focusing on your task. What did you do when there was no perceived pressure on it? you focused about the exact action you were taking and the way that you were taking it. That stuff sort of fascinates me. The things, the tricks that you, the human mind does. And I think, and that's, yeah, getting back to the selection side of things, the whole time you've got that pressure, I think, that you put on yourself, which is something that uh, people who are smart, which they when they're doing the selection course, they're wildly intelligent. They've done it before. They know when those things are going to get to you and when to sort of turn that key just to see what you're made of. So, Damien, with the group that eventually got selected, how many were they then? Um, we had probably I think six or seven because we ended up in a room that they took us into the room uh, when we the course was over and they were saying numbers and we're sitting in there and you're sort of looking at everyone around you and you're like, okay, cool. So he's here. He did really badly at this thing. He was amazing at this. He was pretty good. And you're sort of confused because there's good guys walking out. There's good guys sitting in the room. And, like, we, I remember turning to one of my mates and just going, oh, man. Like, your heart's just going through the floor, just going. We, After such a big year. Yeah, we're like, we were pretty we were good, man. Were we good enough? And you literally go through every single, you critique everything that you've done from how your gear's organized to how you presented to whether you sighed when you walked off something. 
which is one thing that's heavily frowned upon. It's like I, I really love that as well. You know, I mean, just there's no oh, type thing. You know, the hell is that noise? Get out type thing. But um, yeah, we I remember looking, and then the late Colonel Fleer stood in front of us, and I thought, well, if we're gonna get sent off, we might as well get sent off by him. You know, let's sit there and get ready for it. He said, um, he did a spiel about the selection course and said, and congratulations, boys, you're the people we're looking for. I uh, just fantastic. That was yeah, that yeah. was wow. the huge, huge moment. You know, for me personally, it was like the combination of what I saw as the the change between the person who I that I was that I really detested and what I'd sort of been able to become with the help of of, of the Australian Army. But that was just to get onto the course. Then no, that was that was at the end of the course. I beg your pardon. Yeah, yeah, just the and, end of the course. And were there because you'd gone direct entry? Were, were there other regular army people who'd served six years and then they were in the course as well? Yeah, so they came in the advanced infantry training. And it's funny because they've got all these great nuggets about how things work when you're back at their battalion. Yeah. You know, they tell stories about these different like little little war stories because a lot of time you spend sort of sitting around waiting for you to go and doing those different things and you'd hear all these different bits. Oh, if you do that at your battalion and then this and people who were all living on, you had these great stories about you know, how life was for them and um, one was at three para. He, he was great. He was really good fun. He just – and now another guy was from up in Darwin and they would sort of would sort of tell you about their, their different experiences and what they did at the battalion. And one, one was really softly spoken. He was, he, he was great. So you'd sort of have to fish for more of that where the other guy was a bit more upfront about, about sharing his nuggets of wisdom with it and stuff like that. It was – I mean, it's just great. Like I find it, found it really cool to be sitting there. You know, they're just this huge different group of people and you're, you're all going through this same course at Singleton at the time, you know what I mean? Just happy to be in a room that's got no furn- no normal furniture or anything like that, watching movies on a laptop as opposed to having like a TV or a kitchen or any of that type of thing. So, so you actually get through at last and you're approved and then they start training for counterterrorism. Yeah, we, after that we had the, like there's the reinforcement cycle, which we've got. So after like selection, selection, you then get paneled for the Rio cycle. And that's just a collection of different courses back to back and back to back. And as you're slowly going through that, you're starting to sort of become less of a trainee and more of one of the guys. But I think with the direct entry scheme, we were direct entry five so it had sort of worn off before we got there. Like it wasn't to, it wasn't still as bad. Like direct entry one really had it bad. You know, it wasn't us and them. Mm. You haven't done the time. That was the funny thing. We heard, I heard that a lot at the start of my career. Get some time up. You know, you've been here since breakfast type thing. And that was that was the whole thing in the army was get some time up, get some time up. And then by the time I left, you'd have someone who'd been in the army for three years and had deployed twice. You know what I mean? Like you'd have a guy three or four years. So that guy who's got 25 years is going to get some time up and he's like, cool, how much time have you spent in Afghanistan, mate? Stand down. You know, it was sort of like that that type of shift that happened in it, which was a it was an interesting one to see the unit go through. I think I was really fortunate with being at the unit through through the Afghanistan side of things just to see the amount of growth that happened, you know, and the evolution of 
I think the first, the first, or most of the type of training that you're doing in the infantry course was based on doctrine for jungle warfare in Vietnam. You know, people talking about high country training in Townsville, and you know how many times you've done this, this really war dog two week jungle course. Yeah, like or something. Yeah, yeah. that's the yeah. Oh, we did. God, we did. We did a two week thing when we first got our company. When I first moved into Bravo Company up there, it was awful. It was it rained the whole time too. We just gotta gotta ask it, you know. And then, but then you're doing stuff, and knowing. But then in twelve months, a majority of the stuff that you're doing to not be seen and not make noise and do all these, the attention to detail you need to pay with noise discipline, light discipline, and everything like that in a jungle, is totally different to when you're in the open terrain of Afghanistan, the hills or the desert. You know, there are there are common there are obviously commonalities with it, but it's a totally different type of mindset. It's funny, Damon, I remember when I was in one commander in the 70s and pre-major you know, pre engagements, but we learnt that. Like I'd done school cadets yeah. and you just bush bash, you know, through the bush. But you would just take an hour to literally go like a, a hundred feet. Yeah. And, and, and I get what you're saying. Yeah, and it's raining and, 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 and how it used to hurt to go so slowly because – you just couldn't break a tweak sort of thing. Yeah. So it was everything um, yeah, noise discipline wise, you're always you're moving at like thirty percent. concealment. Yeah, yeah, you're doing all that type of stuff. And yeah. then you're in the middle of a of a desert where it doesn't really matter. They can see you from four Ks away. Yeah. You know, there's different parts of your craft that you have to like wire tight for that type of warfare. So it was it was great to see the evolution of that. You know, and all these things that really like guys who were green or whatever it really mattered you know you really got to this and that and then a year later they're sort of like oh, that doesn't really matter as much and, now, and just it. the diversity like your first deployment you know you're on a naval ship oh, going, going to fiji yeah that <laughs> this job anyone who was on that job who's listening will just go he was a nutter to about me which rightly so um so i at that stage wasn't still pretty green in the unit and I remember the boss who we had on that trip was he was the same guy who ended up as our captain in Afghanistan um and I remember us all sitting in one of the one of the buildings at work and he goes look is is there any reason why anyone can't do this job and we all sort of looked at each other no one's going to say that we yes. signed on for this yeah, yeah but there's a big a, a, a fair few guys who had been put in to bolster up Alpha Company were ex-Delta Company were Delta Company guys who just got back from Afghanistan. So they got back from rotation three, which they had a lot of stuff happen on rotation three. It was a really, yeah, it was a, it was a heavy deployment. And we had those guys, a lot of the, the sort of mortar troop came and joined, joined our platoon. And he sort of said that and everyone's like, okay. And he goes, so what's going to happen is there's two companies that are going to go up. They're going to be sitting on a, boat, a troop carrier called Canimbla. They're going to be in a battle box just off Fiji. We all knew what we had to do. Um, there's a coup going on. They've seized the, They've seized the ammunition on the docks, you know, and our platoon was just going to basically wait in Townsville. You know, you guys are going to wait in Townsville. You're going to have there'll – be, there'll be rooms and barracks. Everything will be sorted out. We're going to be living in this little bit ready to go. We're going to be a quick reaction force. So we'll fly in and probably do a paraload follow. So – and that sounds pretty easy. But me being a rookie, I had no – like just didn't have the experience to really know what to pack to go. I didn't take a book. I didn't take my laptop, I took a phone, but that's pretty much useless when you're in that spot of the water. Um, 
just had nothing to entertain myself. And I have the worst ADD. Uh, I, I don't know. I've never been in anyone else's mind, but it's bad. And I, yeah. So when we get to Townsville, like I'm like expecting to sort of wave goodbye to the other two platoons and okay, cool. Have fun on that. Have fun on the boat boys. You'll, that'd be great. When we get there, he's like gone. The boss has gone. Okay, guys, it's been a change of plan. We're on the boat now. I hadn't even, I didn't even have a magazine. I had nothing to keep myself entertained. And then next minute we're on this boat, which was wildly overloaded with people. They had so many people on it and just getting used to it. And the Navy um, doing their thing played Groundhog Day on the TVs for the first like three days. And I, I couldn't sleep on it. We had 130 guys or something all sleeping on a level that was supposed to house, God, I think 100 max for I think the maximum amount of time you were supposed to be in a space like that was like two or three days. That's how the ship was designed. And so after about a week, I couldn't sleep. I could only sleep when the guys went out because it was too hot. They just didn't have a ventilation system. And I don't know if you've ever slept in between two men, but that's what it felt like. Your bunk was about this big. It was it was just, it was the worst, like the absolute worst. Um, I, I've slept on, a, um, on an Oxley submarine in the hot bunking where the bunking is that big. You yeah. can't actually roll. So yeah, I, it's awful. You can't roll. You, you can't got move. To, yeah, pivot your shoulders. And, yeah, it wasn't I get it. It wasn't that enjoyable. But I think a couple of weeks in, you're starting to get over the fact, you know, you go into your intelligence brief each night and they're just like, so the two guys who were worried are going to go to war were sitting next to each other drinking beer at a rugby match. Um, yeah. And it's like oh, you sort of go on, okay, well, get, get, us, get us home. Can we go? Like, is is this happening? Nothing happening. And Let's go. Yeah, and but you continually, and you've always got to be at sort of action to move. And I was just so bored. I ended up walking laps in between the bunks to the point where at some stage, I think more than one person said, man, would you stop? Or I'm seriously, I'm going to, like, hit you. And at that stage, I'm like, well, please. Like, that's, that would be, that's literally a better case scenario than me still walking, but I can't stop walking because I'm that nervous. Like, it just, and um. Yeah, it was wasn't an enjoyable trip by any means. Um, Look, that that's the army. You, but know, yeah. you go where you're told to go, and yeah, General Highmarsh. When we're on the way back from um, from East Timor, he got a plane with us, and everyone's got their questions right. Everyone wants to move their career forward, and so there, you know, it's General Highmarsh. We'll have a chat to him about whatever. He sat next to me, and he goes, "So, have you got anything you want to talk about?" I'm like, "Yeah, why'd you leave us on Ganimba?" <laughs> Literally, the first thing that I said to him, but there was no niceties, and he goes, "Look, it's." It's a lot harder to get you guys back than it is to send you out. Do you know how much money? I'm like, money. You're telling me about money. Really? Are we doing this? But um, I think the, the thing, the army can be a big world and it can be a really small world. And we got on Canimbla. I remember walking past someone who had long hair. I sort of looked at him and he's, he had a beard. I'm like, I know this guy. Playing cricket and baseball when I was young, you know a lot of people from the area you're in. You play, I played rep, reps in both of those sports so and you travel a bit so I was like I know this guy from somewhere and I, I was walking past I said hey man do what do you like play baseball or something do I no and he's gone man you yeah I'm glad you cut your hair because I used to have this <laughs> horrible long hair when I was young and um like they said Goldilocks and he's he sort of said I'm glad you cut it I used to play cricket for Tukli he played first grade against us and that was, I, I top scored that game like, yeah we got rolled but I, I batted all right but I remember kind of going, oh, that's that's cool. Okay, I remember that. Yeah, and 
from then on, it sort of took me back to a different thing. But we were, I was up on the smoking deck one day because that's kind of was the social thing on the ship. Everyone would go up and you'd, you'd all be on the, even people who didn't smoke, it was sort of like a thing that. It was the gathering yeah, place. Yeah, it would give you 15, 10, 10, 15 minutes. And there was a huge amount of people there and they were doing a, a counter-terror thing, like a sniper training with two of the choppers. And then all of a sudden we hear this bang. And then there's like, you look up and there's rotor blades flying in the air. And you're like, oh no. And then Rufus, Rufus, who was, um, he was our CSM at the time. He yelled. It was like he was in a movie. It was, he just, take cover. He kind of gave that one, which he'd probably been waiting to say for so long. <laughs> but, you know, it was kind of every, I remember ducking down, being near the stairs, sort of turning and seeing him run up. I ran after him, like under what was the comms deck. They had all this comms stuff stuck up that you normally couldn't go, but, you know, under the circumstances. And I saw him reaching back with his arm with a going one and he was counting hell is he counting and I went and looked and by that stage you couldn't see the chopper you could only see bubbles and there were two people who'd popped up at that stage and we had six pop up on our side of the boat we're counting them I'm just like okay wow there was more than six people in that chopper oh no you know right then you kind of had this moment of going this is this is a really serious situation that we're in right here Okay. And, the sh- and the ship's still moving on. Um, I think we were stagnant at that stage. I think we'd stayed in the one spot and they were circling doing training, I think. I'm not, Thank I God. can't 100% remember. Did that they get any of the guys phase. back? We, um, they got two came up on the other side of the boat. That's how deep they were by the time they got out. Um, one was the captain, Mark Bingley, who he died when they got him onto, onto, onto the, the deck. deck yeah. And um, it took days. They turned comms off on the boat so that no one could... The Navy get very upset when you call it a boat as well. Yeah. It's a ship. A submarine. Yeah, submarine's a boat. Yeah, well, they're like, oh, it's a ship. Yeah. It's a ship. You know, it's a boat. And then, yeah, I, I see. I'm still dirty on it. I haven't been on a cruise ever in my life based on that. I'm just like, well, they'll all be the same, won't they? I'm not really, yeah. But um, we had the, the comms break, which that was hard because you couldn't, we all knew we weren't going to say anything, but you couldn't uh, like sort of speak to your family about what had happened until the families had been notified because there was one guy who didn't come back off it. And it wasn't until we were like, they didn't tell us, no one said anything. We saw it at the same time as everyone else. So everyone's literally standing in this this bottom room watching the news and then like Josh's face pops up on the screen. And that was like, that was like the job became very, very, very real at that stage. You know, there's been like different, I don't know, you had different thoughts about what it was going to be like and how, what you had to mentally and emotionally prepare yourself for. But when it becomes real, it's always something different. You know, you can't, you can't read the label from inside the bottle type thing. And, um, yeah, that was the first. And you weren't even in a war zone. No, yeah, that, that's it. You know, and it was, yeah, it was just scary. And then when you're training to do the, the helo stuff, you know, that chopper went down a lot quicker than the stuff does in the training things. Like it was a, it was, it was a really scary experience. And, and, I didn't, and in the training, you're actually ready for the chopper to crash, to get out yeah. of it. Whilst these guys are just waiting for the routine landing on the deck to get out, let the next guys in. Uh, no, I think they were doing landings and then like peeling back off. So the snipers were essentially covering the deck while the other chopper came in to land and then they would redo a different serial with the different snipers. And just to tag in, tag out. 
And it was, yeah, I mean, that was a, it was kind of like a hard baptism pill to swallow at the time, especially since at that stage I didn't want to be there. You know, I really didn't. I think I just had, like, my, I felt like my life was in order at some stage. I had a, a girlfriend back home that made it a little bit hard, but I just wasn't really, I kind of lost part of the desire that I'd had at the stage because it was just like, all right, well, we're all in the same storm, but this is just, it's pretty ordinary. And I remember um, our boss at the time said, look, there's good things on the way. Like just stay in. Essentially they knew that we were getting the call to do rotation four the next year. And I just said, I don't care. I like, I have no idea why you think I would care about this. And this is literally me teaching, speaking to the major who was in charge of us, you know, who's our OC. I'm just like, I don't care, man. Like I don't, I don't want to, I, yeah, I just well, I didn't have my heart in it, so it was kind of good that uh, I guess what happened happened from there. Because I um, we went back to the unit. If you were getting punished for something, you would you would get sent across to a place like where they operated the watercraft. You were essentially part of boat platoon, you know, and that wasn't it wasn't exactly a highly regarded position. And because of my insolence when it came to the boss, um, I got I got to spend the next eight months. It worked out over in boat platoon, just sort of revisiting whether I wanted to be a part of the unit and what I wanted to do there. And it turns out it was summer. It was probably eight of the best months that I've spent in the mm-hmm. Army. I mean, we you drove the the ridge, the ribs, the rigid hull inflatable boats around the harbour. You did It was just gorgeous places. You had to go with them and a good group of people. And it really gave me the spark to want to get back out there. And, See some action. Yeah, yeah, and really find my feet at the unit and get used to the way that it worked and who you had to be because I think before – before that had happened, that really humbling experience, I sort of thought I had to be someone other than myself there. You know what I mean? You can't – everyone knows you can't be a square block in a round hole at a place like that. I was trying so hard to be a round block for the round hole that I was kind of making myself the square block. You know what I mean? I was, and it was – majority of it was just so, inside so, my head. So, Damien, did they um, deploy you to Timor next before Afghanistan? Yeah, yeah. So we, a- And how did you find Timor? It was it was great. Like finding out I was going there was really cool because we were doing something. I'd sort of been asking, going, guys, can I get back yeah. to the companies? And like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll see when it comes around. And you're sort of at the mercy of it. And in my mind, I spent five months wanting to be back at a company so badly. I was like, okay, you just got to accept. You know, it was a really good growing process for me to be there and go, okay, so that's what you've got to do to be able to now get your game together want to be there or no one will want you there type thing. And then I got this, I got a call when we were doing a, like just a basic rib training work in the, been in the Paramount, in the Georges River. We're doing stuff out there. And then I get this call saying, hey, are you good to go to Timor? And I'm like, yeah, 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 I am for sure. And he goes, oh, sweet, you leave Friday. <laughs> like it's Wednesday. And he goes, yeah, yeah, so you probably better get back and start getting ready. And I'm like, that's awesome. So I was like, and then... I kind of had that that sort of drive back, you know. I'd been spending well, I'd been spending a lot of time making sure that when I got back to a company, I was going to do my best sort of work. You know, I was really going to get back to the original focus that I had when I first got to the when I first got into the army and get that bit of passion back. And East Timor was great. I had a great team. I had a phenomenal like our our team commander was really generous with. What he, with what he did and the knowledge he gave to you. You know, he knew that I was 
greener than, you know, uh, that I was still reasonably green, but he was really happy to sort of give me the the little nuggets of wisdom that sometimes were were hard to were hard to come across. You know what I mean? Like he really took a nurturing role to point me in the right direction with a great team of guys as well. They were just awesome. Like Jim was great, Dave, mate. All of all of these guys were just phenomenal. You know, really pushing you to go forward and do your best. And Timor was just a great learning experience of going, so this is what it takes when you're on deployment. You've got to, I think I was ready to roll with the punches a little bit more when I got to East Timor. And we sp- we'd spend time doing different things. And it was just, it was really a great feeling to be back in a team, like doing doing the things and really seeing where I should fit into the equation. You know, it was really organised and it was a, it was a really awesome trip that we were on. But also I didn't have any... I didn't have a girlfriend back home. I was just doing it with me with no need to get back. There's no baggage. For any time, yeah. Plus I had this one moment where it kind of made me regret the way that I behaved in – like, I mean, I, there was a lot of things that made me regret the way I behaved in Canimbla. But when I, we were over in um, in Timor, there was a guy who I was working out with and we, like, we kept – we'd always race each other. You know, it would always be who could lift the most, who could do the most of everything and who could run the fastest. And he was always a little bit better than me, so he's probably the best guy to do it with because you always mm, work harder. Yourself, yeah. And table tennis. <laughs> table tennis was my thing, but when we're back at the A-pod, I could play and I'd be reasonably good. But um, I remember having this combo. He was pretty stoic. He didn't do too much. And I remember sort of speaking to him one day, walked in, he's sitting on his stretch. I'm like, mate, what's up? Like, what, are you cool? And he, he looked at me and goes, what's my – my son's birthday today and you, you don't really know how you know to sort of respond to my like, mate oh that's how it's old pretty. is he he's like oh he's five god oh you know for me he's so young it's getting worse everything i say i'm like um god he looked up at me and goes you don't get it man i said what and he goes i haven't seen one of them yet oh. and when he said that i was like okay here i am like thinking for the whole time at Canimbler I'm missing my life with my girlfriend or something for no reason and, and all these little things and there's guys who are doing that. It just it was the biggest it was a reality check that I really needed of what it was gonna take to get into that role and and really do my best when it came when it came to the work that that needed to be done. And I think I got so many good things out of Timor, you know, out of just operating operating in that team, the simple things that, you know, really made me feel like I'd set into the job and I was ready, like ready, ready to do to do the job that needed to be done. And I um so when we got back to the unit, uh, we got leave for I got leave over summer, which was kinda good. We got back just early December. Oh sorry, late December. Got leave for uh, no, most of January. I guess I got back and they go, Look, you've been moved to Bravo Company. So go across and and get used to it. And I remember I walked into the building. I be, I was, there was a fight at the pub that, I, like outside the pub at Terrigal, and there were three guys picking on one guy. Like, so I thought, well, two guys on three is probably a little bit fairer. We'll go over, and you know, I'll be the hero. And so I, I cruise into this knuckle, and I end up getting my eye socket shattered. And so the first thing that I have, I've gone in. I've got a freaking black eye and no it wasn't it was after I'd had the operation sorry to fix the eye socket that I got moved across to there and um so I got in I've got like this black eye and this dude just walks down 
the main thing. And this is the first time I'd stepped into the building and I remember him looking at me and going, hey, hey, yeah, do you, do you know what you're doing here? I'm like, yeah, mate, do you? And he looks back, he looks back at me and goes, yeah, my name's Waco, I'm the OC of the company, who are you? <laughs> I'm just like, Private Tomlinson, I've just come across the joining. Good so, to have you here. Yeah, good <laughs> to have you here. It looks like you've done it, you know, looks like you've done yourself a bit of a mischief, kind of does that. So I told him the story and he had a good laugh at the fact that my that my head came off second best. Um, but, yeah, it was then, it was a great group of guys that I went into. There was a lot of guys who were on a rotation before that, so they had a wealth of knowledge about it. Um, just a really cool crew of guys. It was just great to be involved in, you know what I mean? Like everyone was... You had people from a lot of different places, which was kind of good. You didn't have the us and them of the direct recruiting sort of scheme company. Were you, that were you guys had bonded then, you know, as a team? Yeah, well, I sort of stepped away. When I got moved to Bravo Company, you were sort of in a new company of guys that had different guys with different levels of experience. You know, you had guys that had gone off and contracted in Iraq, then come back to the Australian Army. You had so many different sort of backgrounds that had come into it. It was just cool to sort of be there and... So, so we're 2009 now and you get deployed to Afghanistan. It's a really surreal thing, you know, to land in Afghanistan. I think part of the underlying reason for me joining was just and really wanting to go there is how am I going to react in a circumstance that you can never put yourself in anywhere else in the world? Like when, how am I going to react when, every, when everyone's playing for keeps? You know what I mean? How am I going to be? Am I going to hold my gear together am I going to freeze am I what am I going to do like am I going to stay in the fight am I going to run from the fight what am I how am I going to be and like so it was sort of that sort of unknown you get there the whole time and Afghanistan looks like the land that time forgot you literally look like you're in a in the place that we were and we're moving through it looks like you're in a story out of the back in the bible yeah. yeah it's really really surreal that whole that whole feeling and then we got our first group of orders after being there for I think four or five days we were going out and spending like uh, I think we did a week of it. I can't even remember. But we were spending a huge amount of time in the vehicles. You know, we had to effectively bomb them up for essentially being out for about a month. I think something like that. It was a long. It was a long time. It hadn't been done before, which was a big deal. Apparently, I don't know. Those sort of things never were never on my radar. But I remember driving out in the vehicles, and we hit, we'd done all the sort of training and everything you needed to, and you. You're going through the process and like I remember driving out going, this is very real. You know, you're actually in that moment that you've pictured for so long. You know what I mean? The first contact that we had, this one, oh, this guy's going to hate me for it. We'd been driving for two days and we'd been going through all sorts of passes and all these different roads, driving in each other's wheel track, going really slowly with guys just sweeping sort of the ground and just different you know, the 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 EOD techs like working it out, sort of crawling through, you know, and we hadn't had um we had no no sense of a firefight and everything was seeming you're starting to get used to the fact that you're there. And we'd found we'd created a vehicle harbour. And when I was sitting there, and this is God, I gotta laugh at it because it was just so random. I'm on picket first, which I thought was amazing because then I was probably gonna get a chunk of time of unbroken sleep. Like this could this would be all right, you know, we, not bad. And we were sitting down and I didn't know whether our mortars were set up, you know, or whether we were test firing anything or something. 
and I didn't hear the thump. Didn't hear any of that. I didn't know where their sort of platoon were at the time. But I see in the distance, like about like a K from us. Little puff. This little and then a little ring of like dust around it. And I'm just like Incoming. Hey, hey, Dave, what are our mortars test firing? What's happening? And he's like come over and he's sort of like free, visibly freaky out a little. And I remember looking up at him. Oh, that's not coming from us. Oh, wow. And then it was sort of everyone, everyone back to him. It was the first time I heard something that just, this is a really weird feeling is hearing something go. Before she hits, yeah. Yeah, and just hearing it coming down. And then for some reason the, the first one didn't even detonate. So you hear this whistle, you're like, oh, and no matter, it's like if something, if it's going to get you, it's going to get you. There's no point running. There's no point moving mm. and whatever. And so I was, everyone's got to done this, the stand to everyone's got the gear on. I woke up the, the kid, he was 20, 23 at the time. And like, <laughs> so nearly sliced his finger off trying to make a spork out of a spoon. So we will call him spork just for. For that I know he'll love it if he listens to this, but and he, but this is the type of kid he was. He wrapped his finger in duct tape and then carried on, you know, just yeah, mind blowing. So I wake him up, right, just going, Man, don't freak out, but we're getting mortared. And I all I could see was the whites of his eyes, like his eyes were so wide, like bang, he was up. We had our gear on. This is the first sort of even remote contact that I'd ever been in. Mm. So I'm like up against the side of the car, kind of hugged in there going, okay, well, if we get orders, I'm close enough to do that. Looking around, everything's fine. And then I got so focused on looking at where it was coming from, going, where did the shot come from? Like, which is something that I didn't really have time to sort of look and assess while I was coming off the picket. And I look around and the, <laughs> the team next to us, which is just over, literally sitting there back in their singlets, with their gear off, they've heard over the radio that it's it's good to go. I was on the other side of the car to my team and I look and they literally got the cards out again and they're just sitting there looking at me. Here they go, you can take the helmet off now, mate. Like, and there's me just sitting in all my gear, just getting ready for this thing. It was, <laughs> I was sort of laughing at me. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's uh, hilarious. One day I'm going to be, I'll be that fine with it and stuff like that. I think, yeah, <laughs> that, was, that was the first one. We had, we had some different times like the, it was hard when we're coming we're coming through a valley and um there's out in front of us we the standard operating procedure for us was blown place you know if we found something that was that was typically it and they said oh we found something you know everyone holds up you you've got you keep your space and you're doing all of those type of things and um i remember i went back to the Back to the back to the car, and you're sort of sitting there, and we're we're just talking crap to each other. You check that all your tires are good, and what can you do in the space of time that you're going to be waiting? And I remember sort of sitting there with um with uh, one of the other guys on my team. I looked look across at him, and we're sort of waiting, and they count us down, and then boom, well, like that didn't it didn't sound big enough. Like it didn't, it just didn't really sound like, it's kind of odd. You're kind of used to that sort of sound. That was just this slab going off. That's weird. 
just sort of sat there and we're just like, everyone's sort of saying that. We're all looking at each other a little bit confused. And then we hear this bang, like proper bang. And one of, one of our Sierra's comes over the thing and says, like calls, boss's call sign and just said, we've just had a KIA. So there was a booby-trapped IED that um, Brett Till went up to effectively assess what had happened with the slab that ended up um, taking his life. Yeah, and that was that was a it's kind of like a one of the, one of those moments, I guess, one of those little things of okay, so this is this, this is, is how real. serious what everything is, you know. And I mean, it just you kind of don't it consumed so much of your thought at that stage, you know, and then it was, a, that was a, it was an interesting day, but it was still the, I think at the end of that, one of the most inspired I've been in the military, you know, there's people doing stuff and you've got this perception of what a hard man will do, you know, type idea. And then there were guys who was, they were sweeping, they'd been in front of us for like two days. You know, not not like you know, rotating through, doing to like a couple of hours each or whatever it is, and then within like two hours of that happening, we still had to get to where we were going. They were back out the front sweeping. You know, we'd just put Brett in one of the cars. You know, like I got to put him on a chopper later. Like that, just it was just mind blowing that people could have the resilience and the fortitude to just step Keep up going. and be and be doing that. You know what I mean? And then that that was something that after that sort of moment really kept my mind going. You know what I mean? Like it kept me sort of pushing forward. Training just clicked in and you just keep going. Yeah, bits of it, you know, to just look and go, okay, cool. Damien, what what happened to you when um, you actually had that terrible explosion? Well, so the way it's been explained to me a couple of times and it's a few different ways. so I'm going to give you the the joint version of all of them because I've got a big black spot. You know, I have that same guy who, when we were getting hit with the mortars, always tells me about um, always tells me about something that happened the night of it, and I still don't remember it. <laughs> like I'm like, man, I still don't remember. Every time, every time we see each other, you tell me about that. Apparently, I swore at him or something. Um, I'm not great with authority, and um, yeah, but. I guess I can't remember that. I can't remember the day around it leading into it. I can remember bits from before it, but it's kind of broken. But what we were doing essentially is waiting for the period of darkness and moving up a sort of escarpment onto a spur line to give cover with a group of snipers while the other platoon went down and did a, um, a direct action task on a group of compounds. And as we're moving up, like you do, the best thing you can do sometimes I think is, is just minimise risk. So we do. We were doing everything that we could, you know. We're driving in a period of darkness. We're driving in each other's wheel tracks to lower our footprint so that, you know, the chances of hitting a pressure plate or something of that mm. sort are reduced. Because apparently when one of the guys said to the boss, he said, look, if I was going to put an IED anywhere, this part of the hill makes a lot of sense. And the boss apparently said back to him, what's your fascination with sweeping hills? And... Yeah, so they. I still agree with his decision to t- send all of our assets to get the guys on the target. That's the important thing. You know what I mean? It's getting those guys safely on the target. Um, so moving in, we were the, I think we were the fifth car in line. I think the hardest thing for me to stomach is I think the impact of what happened to me on everyone else. The sniper who'd said, 
that's, that's where he thought it would be, was kneeling down. What they would essentially do, they would kneel down and they'd point everyone in a different direction. So your car over that side, your car over that side, you guys here, you guys here. He was watching it and he got to watch my car explode. Mm. Um, it hit my the right driving side wheel. It removed my right leg. My left leg was really badly damaged up to about halfway down my shin. My right hand, three bones were broken. The wrist was done. The elbow was hanging out of thing. Shoulder had dislocated. My right arm was broken in a weird S band and the thumb. I've done broken that thumb like four times. It's really awesome. It's a superhuman little bad boy. Um, and my nose, they tried to rip my nose up and took a bit of my, chunked a bit of my lip. Um, and then, so I get hit. The two guys, the guy next to me who's pretty close to me at the time, he got blown out of the car. Or well, not blown out, but on a weird angle and the gearbox apparently was next to him. Um, the kid who was in the back, the spork, he got blown out of the vehicle and woke up screaming essentially after it and then crawled over and started working on me. And the way they found me amongst all the rubble and stuff apparently was making this weird like raspy sound, trying to breathe I think. Like, I'm not sure. I wasn't that conscious at the time. Like, I would like to think that I took it like a champ and was just smiling, saying things are going to be okay, but it got me it got me pretty bad. Like, it got me really bad. Um, and, and, I mean, nighttime, so I'm assuming it's pitch black sort of thing? Yeah, so there's no no white light at that stage. I think the first when they're first establishing the scene, the, the issue with something like that happening is everyone in a huge radius has heard it. You know, if they're ready for us to be coming down, they now know where we are. You know, our, our element of surprise when it comes to being dark is is gone. You know what I mean? So, and white light, you're essentially the only white light, the only candle sitting on a hill. It's a pretty easy target to start shooting at, you know, especially when you know all you got to do is be in a big circle of it and chances are you're going to go close to hitting something. So for people to turn up the way that they did on under circumstances like that still just blows my mind. You know, it still does. Like, honestly, the I, I was on the ground for 56 minutes. 56 minutes from the time that the first nine-line call went in to when a chopper was there and got me out. And that's... That's a lot of time to be that's exposed. That's a long time. Like, honestly, to try looking at 56 minutes while you're looking at a clock, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's everything slows right down. But, I mean, that's – it's kind of a testament to the guys who were who were on the ground who, like, got me got me through that. Like, that's – knowing that every single thing you do could be the difference between you and living or dying, you know what I mean? And then all at that time trying to put it in the back of your head, this is the guy who you go out and you drink with, you play golf with and you do all of these different things, you know, or you're, you're pretty close even though you come from – different backgrounds, you're really close. It just is such a, you know, it was a, and a horrific, horrific scene for anyone to, to have to watch, you know. And I've got one, one of the guys said, because I've, I've asked him, and this is the weird thing, I didn't want to ask and make anyone talk about it, you know what I mean? Because I think everyone, everyone was worried about me, what was I going to think about how horrible it was. And then, but my whole worry was how were they going to think about how horrible it was. And I remember having the convo, it's only recently, like only four or five years ago, um, I sort of said to a guy, I said to one of them, like, Look, I didn't mention anything about it because I thought you'd be bothered. And he sort of looked at me and goes, oh, I thought you'd be bothered. Yeah, mm -hmm. okay, it went like this. 
he told me the story and like there was this, a time where I was trying to run away from it apparently, which would look really weird with no legs and you know what I mean, everything going wrong. And he had me in a mounted position with both hands on my shoulders and he said I was trying to punch him with two broken arms to get him off me. And all he felt was broken arms just touching his face with a swing type thing and he could hear my bones creak and just all of these, like the crepitus of my bones while it was hitting him, like he said, it was just like sickening. So, yeah, But how good were these guys to save you, to stop the infection getting in? I mean... You're a miracle just, being here with, with with those sort of wounds. There's no there's no doctor that I've spoken yeah. to that's seen the reports. Like Andrew Ellis is the head orthosurgeon. He just he came and visited me when I was in hospital. That was one of the great things. He's such a great guy. He came every single day. He would come dressed to operate, and then twelve hours later, he'd come before he left. He'd come in and like say, "Hey, how you going?" You know, like a How's things today? There's this was the specialist more. unit in Germany, wasn't it? No, this was in no, rural North Shore. Oh, okay. Yeah, North Shore Private, sorry. And, um, yeah, the specialist team in Germany, we had I had a couple of days apparently in Helmand Province, not in Helmand, sorry, in Camp Bastion, which I think might have been it's in It's a Helmand. British base, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's a UK base. And um, that, that was where they did the initial triage of going, can we have them survive? And I think from what I hear, my parents found out at the stage where they'd operated but because of the amount of blood that they'd had to put through my system, like I went through like six times the average person's sort of mm-hmm. volume of blood in yeah, the first operation, which kind of gives you an indication as to how bad I was. But they had me on a bed where it had got to the stage where they'd wrapped a space blanket around me. And if I couldn't hold my own body heat my own way, I was dead. I was done. And that that was the stage it got to. And that's when my parents found out. They're like... Yeah, there's not there's not much of a chance if he does come through, he's going to be a triple amputee. And yeah, that's so, so, so. When you got hit, I mean, in the team, there's always medical qualified people. But I mean, how how good were those medics? I mean, it's superhuman. I mean, like to, just, to run over in the dark. Um, one of them was the kid. So he's got blown out. He's concussed. He's yeah. lost an, an eardrum's been blown out. And he was the one who put the tourniquet on the right leg. Well, it saves your life. Yeah, you know, like, and there's different people on the scene through it. Like, people rotated in and rotated out. We had a guy, a legend called Ian Turner from the from the team behind us who came up and was, well, he did a lot of work on the scene of it. And, you know, he, <laughs> we, were, we were talking about it. Um, I mean, a, a moment when we were having a pizza one night where he told me about it. He's just like, oh, all I heard was this guttural scream. Like, and all I could think was is poor, poor guy, he's dying. That's that's all she wrote. And then he heard Spork yell out, he's still got his nuts. <laughs> he caught my nuts in the tourniquet as he was doing it. <laughs> and that was the time that I became human again and yeah. just screamed. I had this really. You need those. Yeah, horrific yeah. scream. And he said that was the only time that he caught cracked, like a bit of a smile through it. You know, he ended up. He was so tired by the end of it, the amount that it took out of him, he slept in cams that were just coated in blood. But, I mean, the adrenaline just kicks in and you do what you do. And But I, I'm I amazed that all, all the dirt and shit didn't get into you. You know, like all those guys, they wouldn't turn up with surgical gloves on. You know, like everyone would have been filthy and... Everyone would have... Yeah, we had... I think that they would have had surgical gloves. Okay. Um, it was know, good. I'm pretty sure and everyone had a tourniquet that you could get off and operate yeah. one-handed and there's... I mean, there's a different level of medical kit to, that everyone had, but we had two medics on our team and both of them had 
their own Gear. basic med kit, yeah. uh, which they could sort of use to stabilise it until we had the platoon medic who could come across and really start taking over the scene, you know, or this is exactly what we've got to do by the book to try and to try and get him out of here. There's a, and, there's a cool and, story about him, I'll tell you later. And then, you know, the other guys then having to no doubt watch the perimeter because you're set up for an ambush yeah. and you're dying to get in to help. I mean, yeah. it's just all, all the thinking of where everyone was doing, what everyone was doing, because suddenly the mission just changes on what happened. Yeah, everything, everything's got to change. And, I mean, the from a leadership perspective, they're, we're worried about, oh, they're worried about losing losing someone again. Yeah. You know, and plus if we get hit, if there's shots that get fired, that chopper won't land. Mm. So the first shot that happens switches the chopper off and that's me dying. And then leadership know that. Then there's sort of positions that, uh, like one of the team commanders, we've, we go through this the same as he does talking about <laughs> me swearing at him earlier in the night. He said the hardest decision he's had to make as a leader is to tell his team to stay back and not clutter the scene. Everyone everyone wants to be in there. You know, I had good friends mm. that are sitting on either side of him that don't want to get in there because sometimes the best thing you can do as a team member is nothing. You know, it's sit back and wait for, for your opportunity to go in and work. You know, sometimes you have to acknowledge that you're tired and then step back and go, okay, cool, it's someone else's, it's someone else's sort of like time time to sort of shine now. But, uh, yeah, he said that was so it's so difficult and he said it like, the first time he said it with tears in his eyes, I'm like, dude, this, honestly, it's the best decision that you've made. That's literally the epitome of leadership there. And he goes, why? It's so hard. I said, man, excellence isn't easy. But, bro, look, at, we're having this conversation now, which means because you made the right good. decision. Mm. Like, your decision made makes the difference. And, you know, and God willing, some luck. You know, like, the, yeah. they didn't close in on you, as you said, if they'd... Started yeah, mortaring the site, there wouldn't have been no chopper. The no, chance no of getting you out in a vehicle and living, you yeah. Know. I should have a tattoo that says Lucky. Like, literally, that should be my nickname, Lucky. I think with all the things that have happened, that it's pretty funny. The other week, I was, um, <laughs> I did a, a movie and my character had a, a fake tattoo on him, like, and on his arm, and it was Lucky, lucky. with some dice. And it was funny for my Instagram page, I like took a picture of it thinking everyone's going to monster me over this tattoo. And all I had with this flood was this overwhelming flood of support yeah. for how great this tattoo was. And, it, yeah, it was <laughs> it's horrible. But, yeah, I, I think there's the stars definitely align. But I think in, in some way, you know, everyone can, you can believe different things happen for a reason or anything that you want. I think that was kind of if you believe in the karma sort of side of things, that was for the guys turning up the way they did, that was their reward. You know what I mean? And I think I'm, I'm always – very conscious of that. I mean, you know, that people did give up big parts of um, their, I guess, their mind state, you know, comfortable night's sleep. They gave up a lot of different things to to have give me, you know, the, the privilege of still being alive. So I've kind of got to repay that debt by making the most of, of each of moment it, that of I've your got. Life. Yeah, I've really got to do something that makes him go, ah, that's the, the, okay. Living the fullest and best life you can. Yeah, that was worth it. So, Damien, after these horrific injuries, tell us about this recovery process that you went through. I still think, like, looking back at it, it's probably it's the best thing to have ever happened to me. Like it is. It's, I think there's, there's something about pushing yourself and having to push in different directions that I, I really like challenge of especially things that 
set up the way this was. I mean, my my dad liked the fact that it had not that he did no one no one liked the fact that it had happened. You know, it's not an ideal situation. But when we were sitting, you know, I was sitting in hospital using my computer. I think I was playing with stocks or something of that sort at the time. And he's like, "This is going to be good." I said, "Yeah, no, it's going to be great." And he's like, he looked at me and goes, "Yeah, because finally you have to use your brain." He'd been uh, he'd been wanting me to for so long, like to finally be in a position where all I could rely on, you know, I take the physicality out of it. All I can rely on is what my brain can do, um, and I mean that that initially, in theory, was was good. But the challenges that come with, like, say, a closed head injury and the amount of different things that you've got to go through, it was a pretty complex complex situation. You know, I wasn't I wasn't always the most relaxed person um when I was in especially when I was in the ICU I really didn't want to be there and I didn't like the fact that um anyone was having to do anything to me so I was quite rude to nurses and different things like that that you know they're sort of things I've apologized to people over it but there's you know you'd rather your actions not need an apology um but then you're sort of in this stage where it's the way forward you're wondering and everything's moving so slowly but sort of sitting sitting there wondering what it's going to be like. You know, I'm going to have to have prosthetics. What are they going to do at that stage? Because I still wasn't completely used to the idea that I'd lost my legs. You're looking at Americans had invested like hundreds of millions of dollars into the technology to use stem cells like blank cells and program them to basically be able to print skin and limbs. You know, so you're essentially looking down the track 20 years going maybe they'll basically be able to grow my limbs back and put them back on and you're still holding on to little bits of those, you know, your mental image of yourself looks a lot different than what your physical appearance really is. You know, I mean, which which is a really funny thing because we if you walked past yourself in the street, would you know it was you? You know, I mean, we don't spend that much time looking in mirrors. You know, I guess with phones and people taking selfies, they're a bit more aware of what they look like, but you don't really spend that much time looking at yourself and the, the image never really looks like it does. You always kind of look at yourself from the perfect sort of angle and stuff like that, you know, when you're getting ready to go out somewhere. And I think after being hurt, I remembered all the times that I'd thought, you know, well, that's not exactly ideal. And then like the way I, the way I looked and, you know, I look back at pictures of myself, I'm like, yeah, you seemed seem like you're all right. But then skinny jeans come in fashion. That's not the best thing to happen once you've lost your legs and you've got no calf muscles. You know, you're all of a sudden working out how to operate these things, trying to look as normal as possible. And, yeah, let's all wear tight ankle skinny jeans. That, that was just a, it's just a bad turn. The way I grew up, everyone had really loose pants on. That was the whole thing through the, the Michael Jordan Bulls era. Um, but, yeah, there were, and there were bits of that, but that were kind of good resets for my mind. Because when you're going through that, you really have to reinforce to yourself that you have little or no control over what anyone thinks of your physical appearance. No matter how much effort you put into it, they don't see it. You know, they see it for two seconds, maybe make a judgment or an opinion and don't care. And ultimately that doesn't matter. It just does not impact one, like doesn't have any impact on my day, what someone thinks. And it's only after being put in a position where... I've got to force myself to think like that, that I understand that's the easiest way to think about it, you know, and that's the best way to think about it. You know, you're not doing it to please other people or anything like that, but all because, I mean, at the end of the day, how much 
how much difference is it going to make? But they were sort of big turning points. Parts of it were, were difficult. I kind of encourage other people, especially when you're going through any type of adversity, is to just grab it and do it your way for a few reasons. One of them, one of the main ones is accountability. If something goes wrong, you don't want to be pointing fingers. I never once thought, like with mine, oh geez, I wonder why this happened. Because I know you're going to a war zone, you're going to the most dangerous place on the planet to do the most dangerous job on the planet. There's a chance that it might not work, or it might not, you know, there's gonna be consequences. You know, there, there may be from that. So it wasn't a shock when I woke up. I was just like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm alive. Like, let's let's go. Is everything in the critical triangle all right? They said yes. I'm like, yeah, okay, keep saving me. We're good to go. And, like, it, I think there's moments where taking control of that and going, okay, so I'm going to make the decisions around this. If it doesn't work, it's on me. But then when you start throwing in some of the people who I had to start building and working on relationships with, like physiotherapists, occupational therapists, a prosthetist, all of these different pieces which were now part of the team that I was going to have to surround myself with to get through this, there was a lot of teething sort of issues that I had through that process. You know, I mean, I had I still had plates in my arm that hasn't hadn't healed properly. You know, I had bones that looking at the x-rays weren't, hadn't really even gone close to sorting themselves out and I was frustrated I couldn't lift weights. You know, I mean, I just, your brain still is the same. That's the hardest thing. Everything's changed, but your brain's still going, I've got to work out twice a day. I have to do it. Like, like it, it's weird. Like when if someone, so pe- people who are fit will understand this. You know, when you're getting fit, you actually notice the fact that you've got to work out, you know, that you're putting yourself through a process to get somewhere. Whereas when you are fit, you notice when you don't work out. It's the thing that's missing. And that, that was a hard one when you're in hospital going, okay, I've got to do this. Or we went in and using sort of the rails in the rehab hospital I'm in and there was a lot of sort of older people who were doing it as well. So you sort of sit to the side and wait. You go, there's a floor-to-ceiling boxing bag. And I just started just a speed bag, a little rhythm bag. Here we go. And then one of the physios came really angrily and grabbed it and goes, you can't use that. Why? And she goes, you're not qualified? Forget the exact way that she worded it. And I'm like, what? And she goes, you know, no one's told you that you can blah, blah, blah. And she had a go. And I literally thought, I don't know who you think you are, but you're about to get this. I was sort of like, you know my background, don't you? They trust me with some of the most dangerous weapons this country's ever owned. And you're telling me that I can't operate a floor to ceiling ball until you say so? Cool. That was the last day that I had her as a physio. Um, we sort of, that was the first person who I thought, okay, well, you got to stand down and move aside. I had a few, a few other things that, you know, going through was a bit of a challenge. In my mind, I've always thought I'm a bit further ahead than I actually am. You know, that's sort of sometimes I need to be brought back to that sort of realisation that I'm at this spot now, you know, and I can evolve into the next sort of phase of motion. But, yeah, I, it was, I think it's always best for me to come to that conclusion. And I found I discovered really early during the piece that me being accountable for my circumstance and how far I wanted to push myself, even if it was bad enough to go, I pushed too far, it's better for me to push me too far, you know, to not have, give anyone the opportunity to be in a position of, of blame or something. So and the first step was, for me, walking was always to achieve one goal. And that was because it, like, you know, you never forget when you're in hospital what you guys did. You never forget that they're still overseas, they're still doing stuff. 
you know, and that there's bits that worry you, you know, the whole time. Is everyone going to be back and what are they going to be like? They're going to have what happened to me tattooed on their mind. You can't take that out. What can I, God, what can I do to show them we didn't, we didn't lose that much? You know, we're fine. And in my mind, just standing there while they get off the plane, like they're walking down the thing was going to be the best. That was the best thing I could do is literally look as close to what I did before they left as, as possible and sitting there in a wheelchair is not going to do it. So that was my motivation to, to be walking and standing up and doing it. And like it was only later I was talking to my dad about it and he said one of the doctors in Germany when they, cause they flew over to spend like the week and a half there while I was still, you know, he was worried, they were worried about whether my arm was still going to last through it. And, um, he said, oh, is he ever going to walk again? And the guy goes, oh, he might, 12, 12 months. It's probably the broad line. I mean, I was walking again in six weeks, so that's – I think that's more just bad judgment from the doctor. Mm. And I had stuff to do. I was kind of busy. But, um, yeah, like I kind of wanted the – the whole time I was always, okay, now I've got this prosthetic leg, now I can do this. And they go, no, we bring that to you and then in a week you can do that. I said, oh, okay, cool. I'm going to do it now. Mm. And, like, there's a photo of me – with my first below knee prosthetic on and a walking frame going, okay, we're getting a hand, we're getting a handle on this. I get to keep this leg, right? Yeah, cool. I'm sort of doing that. And you just see this look of a prosthetist who's only built it to see whether my stump fits in it. And you're it's using not, it. Yeah. And I'm trying to, I'm weight bearing on it, using it, yeah. just going, okay, well, yeah, this is going to be fine. Whatever. And like now I kind of know, but you know, if I can weight bear on it, what's why couldn't I walk on it? You know what I mean? And I still, I'm like that. I like, and to me, I think there's parts of it where I just had to accept I was going to be powerless. But that then reinforces taking control of the things that you, you are in control. control of and then making the best of them. And the biggest one of them, I think, that took me a while to grasp was my attitude towards things, you know, my attitude towards it and what I think, how I view success. I think the process, because success only lasts for a small moment. You've got to keep going to the next task. You've got to keep moving forward. Because for me personally, I've noticed that the stagnant periods after something's been really successful, something that has really hit a mark that I've been working towards for years, that's the hardest bit for me is to find the the what now, what are, where am I doing it and stuff like that. So now I, I try to sort of think about it, which is something I've been working on for the last like 10 years of going, as long as I'm just getting better, I'm getting closer to the person I want to be. You know, all of those moments of success are just rewards to keep you going on the on the sort of push forward to just be getting that little bit better, just improving that tiny sort of bit. And that's that was the type of mentality that kept me going at times through because you get you have these phases where oh, I'm walking again, it's great. I'm walking with a walking stick, this is the best. Then I'm walking with a walking stick. It takes two weeks and you go nowhere. Then like two weeks later you're walking without it. You work, well, you work something out. And I think prosthetics, getting used to wearing them, there's so many different things that happen with them. And some of them you've just kind of got to learn. This means that the prosthetic's too tight or it means it's too loose. Um, when the first thing that your mind's saying is this isn't working properly. Not what is it? How do I do it? And it's typically counterintuitive. It's not always, okay, it's not working properly, it's too loose. It's not working properly. It's whatever. There's a number of different things that affect its alignment. Sometimes it's whether you're tired. There's all of these different things that go into how they work. And iron, ironing those out was was a tough one. And I think coming to coming to grips, but with the fact that the things that I had come reasonably naturally, which were working out, staying active. I mean, like I mentioned, surfing was a huge part 
of my, my childhood. And that's what everyone sort of did when I grew up. And I couldn't, without rusting, I couldn't go into, you can't really go out and go surfing. You know what I mean? Like there's all of these, I used to love getting home from work. I lived out at, um, at Coogee. Used to love getting home. If you knocked off early on a Friday, it would be awesome. You'd just go out, I'd paddle out at Maroubra, get a couple of waves, and just like sit in a pair of board shorts, slide off my board, and just breathe out to the point where I sank. And then all of us, that was the only time that everything would just stop. You know, everything, no matter what it was, no matter what course you were on, no matter how tired you were, no matter what had happened, everything, you could just breathe and just go bang. There, and you just look around, and everything's just that touch slower I used to love that moment you know I mean and I think knowing then getting home after I was hurt you know I've got my place it had a place at Bondi at that stage and you know I'm looking at my quiver of surfboards standing in the corner knowing that that feeling was good it was a long way away mm. you know it was the beach doesn't look that long it doesn't look that wide that soft sand like you know always know from when you're young it's hot when you're running across it in the middle of summer but when you're core can't hold you on these prosthetic legs to walk across it. That's a long, long, long way. You know, followed by shallow water moving into deeper water that you can't walk through because you can't control your right leg after the knee breaks. You know, so there was all these things that were just pushing me in a different direction to what had previously been my sort of zen space. You know, so I had to try and do what I could to find myself again, find my direction, do what I could do. And part of that was I sort of thought, well, I was working in the, the development cell in the army and um, they give me a they give me a job. They told me, you know, you can have a job for the rest of your life. You can be a clerk if you want. You can be all of these different things. And I... Not really you. No, nah, I wanted to be at the pointy end or just not there. So you is, know, that, that, is was, that why you took on the Kokoda? Climb? Yeah, we when I was working in the in that cell, we um we had a an incident. And this when I was in Singleton training, we'd had a night out, and we <laughs> I met this guy when we were out. We were actually there was these two girls who were good friends, um, and we were but we were kind of on the other side of them. And he said, "Ah, oh, you know my name name's Ben. You know, blah blah blah." I said, "Hey, how you going, Damien?" So you're in the army? He goes, yeah, yeah, I'm in the army at the I'm like, hey, I'm a, I'm one of the AITs. So I go, oh, sweet. So we spent the rest of the night kind of drinking and then went to respective houses or whatever. And it turns out that guy was Ben Sharp. And um, we, I got a phone call one day when I was at my place in Bondi. And, like, I take my legs off when I get home and I sit in a wheelchair. It's the only place I use a wheelchair. Um, and I get this phone call on a private number, so I'm like, it's work. What have I done this? Have I left something on or what have I, what have I done? Um, I didn't leave the coffee pot on or what's happened. And I get this call and I'm like, hey, how you going? They go, well, you're sitting down. I've gone, that's a stupid question. Mm. And the guy's like, look, I'm sorry, man. Like, come on. I, I'm like, don't worry about it. What? He's like, look, there's there's been a, a mass casualty in Afghanistan. And, like, I had that same, the same feeling as when Josh, the same feeling as when Brett, you know, you just, oh, okay, we're there. And then he goes, we've got... Like two guys are critical. We got seven really badly injured. There's two guys. Two of those are, are critical. And the optimist in me that I think, I rather the idea of being optimistic about things for the simple reason that 
The whole idea of emotionally preparing yourself for something terrible means that if it's terrible, you have to live through it twice. And that's just, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I just, I don't understand the logic in that of going, well, I'm just going to think it's going to be really crap. And then if it's good, it won't be crap. And you're like, but you've already lived through it being really crap in your mind. Why would you not? Yeah, but that's another thing. So I, the optimist in me thought that they may have an amputee in that crash and that I was going to have to go to hospital and sort of say, Hey man, it's all good. Yeah. Like you just help him through. Yeah. You just, you just live. It's kind of similar to before you just live I can do it. You can do the it. body part. Yeah. You'd be fine. You'll probably do it better than me. It's just, yeah. One of those things. Uh, and then he goes, no, nah, man, it's, it's worse than that. We've had three KAA. And I was sort of running through my mind who was there, you know, who was doing what. And they said, Oh, Tim Applin. And I remember him telling this joke while we were away. And, God, it was – I don't know what it was, but it was hilarious. We'd been out for the whole night and we were all exhausted and he just said this one-liner, which is one of the funniest things. Like, sometimes when you're tired but you're delirious, laugh. But I remember, like, this was full gut laugh of they're going to hear us in the next like, – Valley hear, Yeah, something. it was – oh, God, it was funny. But um, And then they go, yeah, the, the second one was, like, Ben Chuck. And, like, that, it was, he was the first guy I'd ever met from the unit outside the unit. It was just a really somber moment. Like I've just got, and they go, man, and the last one, Scotty Palmer. And Scotty on, from what I heard, like our boss told me one, everyone's told me different stories about it, but Scotty was on the scene from the, the mothership vehicle that we had that had platoon headquarters. He ran across and was doing part of the medical work on me. He was one of the sets of hands that was on the scene of doing things. And um, so for me, they were like the, sort of superheroes type thing. And so when it when they said about Scotty, I was just like, that's, you know, like, meh. Yeah, I, I, can, I can't really remember, like, that what happened after. I remember everything being in my place, turning my phone off, and then I, I, I don't know. Like, I'm not, there's, it just kind of disappears a little bit. It's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to describe what happened. Um, but then... A couple of weeks later, they were like, we have, we've got some guys from the from the chop crash. They're having a dinner here and they want you to go. Okay, cool. Like, there we go. And we're, all, we're all talking about stuff. And Scotty's dad, Ray, comes up. He's got this sweet little handlebar mustache. Like, loves it. He's still got the thing. Like, it is, yeah, it's a work of art. And he um, he's talking to me, right? And the whole time we were having this conversation there's no real way to emotionally prepare yourself for, um, you know, I, I can't think of anything worse. And I'm, I, I, I really hate the fact that I put my parents through it. But there's nothing worse than you know, having to, to bury your child. It's just, it's not. Yeah, I. It's unimaginable. It's just the the only way to describe it. And I knew that the whole time I was sort of going out there. And then when I was standing there looking at someone, I just was just seeing some like a man who was never going to be able to sit across from his son this close at Christmas. You know, he's never going to have, well, like it was just physically, it was like sickening. It was so hard to do, you know. I mean, I, and I took a lot of the responsibility on in different times to be parents from my units sort of shoulder to cry on. They'd see me do things on TV or different places and, you know, you were the first one that, you know, everyone could associate with. So you spend a lot of time doing those things and I've got more than enough time for that. You know, it's yeah, and I was I was talking to talking to Ray, and he was explaining that 
he'd spent time in the Air Force and he was telling me about it being Scott's last trip. And I, I, didn't, I didn't know this, you know, so he's telling me that it was his last trip before he got out of the Army. I'm like, wow, because this was the last job they were doing. They were five days away from coming home. Mm. Like it just, and he was talking about they were going to do the Kokoda track together. So we were going to do it. And that was going to be my way of sort of showing Scotty because he'd done so many trips to Afghanistan and stuff like that that he was worth the time type thing. Like he was, it was like he was saying it as if he was going to prove it, that he was worth it for Scott. And like when he was sort of saying that, I just, I'm just like just trying to hold back tears, not doing very well, but trying my best to hold back tears. And then he just straight out said, look, I can't, I was, I can't, I can't do it with him, can I? I want to do it with you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. And I think I probably left the same amount of time as Scotty would have if he was doing the same thing with my dad, you know, so, uh, which could have been a very, very similar circumstance, couldn't it? You know, I mean, and I think in a in a situation where you're playing for keeps, everyone's got to be committed and not just committed to those parts of the people around them, you know. If, if we lose a guy, his family are our responsibility, you know, and my family would be their responsibility and that's the way that that sort of that – system works you know so no matter what happened I was doing that I walk with him I never I didn't really look at it I didn't train the way that I should have I didn't do any of the parts that you know I guess a normal person is doing Kokoda would I went through it just with uh, going what whatever I do right now this is helping Ray get through this is helping Ray get through something I can never imagine what it's like so whatever it does to me is Immaterial. Yeah, just does not matter. So, so go through it, go through it. And we had a great time. We had a, we had a really good time out there. And I mean, it, I think the most satisfying thing after it was Ray. Then ended up he took. God, he's taken so many. Different, he runs a group now, the Family of the Fallen, the Families of the Fallen. Sorry, and they have a dinner every year, and they all get together. He's taken like fifteen or sixteen families across the Kokoda Track in the years after it. You know, I mean, he's kind of he went from someone who was really wanting support to being that mechanism of support for other people. You know, and to even to be a part of that is just a, an amazing, amazing sort of opportunity just to be able to be a cog in that wheel, if you, if you know what I mean. I mean, then that the walk itself was it just hurt. It was hard, but it still was really satisfying. I think to get through. Like and to see to see the to see the growth, you know. I mean, it went from, you know, I think there was there was a lot of stuff that, you know, you got to get off your chest, you know, and say. Sometimes you can think it, you can say it to yourself before you go to sleep or before you wish you could go to sleep. But being able to actually just verbalize it really, really helps. You know what I mean? And I remember listening to an account, and in particular, what struck me was your tenacity, and in particular, your pride that. You would go until your body would stop functioning and then the native porters would insist on carrying you because you couldn't move and if you weren't moved on to the next place, the whole thing stopped. But how your pride would kick in when you were, let's call it a couple of hundred metres from the next camp and irrespective of anything, you'd you'd, you'd switch on again and and get in there. Yeah. and I can imagine, well, I can't imagine because I haven't suffered it, although 
I have a son in the army now and I've often said to him, I want to do Kokoda with him. So if he ever listens to this, I hope he and I do it because as you and I know, shit happens and sometimes you don't get to do Kokoda with your dad. Yeah, it's it's honestly, if, and, if, you, if you're listening, if you're listening to this podcast, it's the best thing that you will ever do. And if you've joined the army, there's things that I got out of it, even if it's as simple as being on a hill going, like it was, it was great. The nights we would get, these sort of moments where they would tell us what happened in places like Brigade Hill, which is one of the amazing landmarks you'll go past up there, and they explain the battle. When you when your mind's worried and thinking about field craft and the way that battles happen and you are actually standing in a place that that's happened going, wow, these guys were on top of each other. This is just... This is hallowed ground. Yeah, you know, I mean, and, but then thinking about what they went through, like personalising the exact situation that they're in was... You know, it's just something and then you look at the people that are around you and all of a sudden you get that appreciation for the fact that they're there and you re- it really just reinforces how important those people that are around you are. Like I I think that you guys should do it. You 100% should do it. Well, I, I'm kids. on board. I just got to get but, – but, Damien, going back to Kokoda, I mean, you were an elite military man, an elite soldier. You know, the militia that were put together to get up those hills with no supplies to fight the jet – I mean – it's not until you get there you can appreciate. It's yeah. just mind-blowing. Yeah. Like they literally went out, they took golf clubs. Mm. They thought that they were getting, like, time off, that it was like a holiday sort of thing for them. And then, the, like, literally one of the biggest moments in Australian war history was fought along that track. And the terrain is just... It's the worst. Yeah, it's just crazy. I don't know. Like, there's there's bits of me that just... Like it scares you, just look at it and go, wow, this would be so scary. And then there's a little bit of me that wants to like go, what would it be like? That would be, that would be really cool to be running around in that skirmish, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's a weird. Uh, you mean a bit like picturing yourself yeah, well, at, at, at Thermopylae, yeah, you know, with Leonidas against yeah. the 10,000 Persians? Yeah, 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 that's it. What have you done? Yeah, you're giving yourself the advantage, I guess. But that's, I think that's one of the things that, selection sort of does it sort of asks people are you the type of guy who when when we you know who is waiting for that moment you know they ask that really interesting question in the psych exam of if you're on top of a building do you ever think about jumping off everyone lies and says no 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 i definitely don't i'm not a psycho and then you actually think about it every time i'm on a building i sort of look down and i think i wonder what it would take to actually jump off you know, if I jumped off, what would it feel like when I'm falling? Then when I hit the ground, like you kind of go through all of those different things. It's, I don't think it makes you a nutter, but yeah, it's you kind of what would I be like in that situation type thing? It's that little unknown type edge. I don't know. I think that's what sort of makes me think about it. And then I, I think about people in World War One, World War Two, and some of the situations that they went through in different places. And you know, in movies, you see the heat of battles. What you don't see is the two weeks shaking, scared, waiting for the next one. You know what I mean? You don't see being in a completely different country away from anything after having not slept, seeing silhouettes places because you're that tired, not eating, not sleeping, being sick, all of those different bits that go into it. You know what I mean? I, that's why I, always, I sort of think we were pretty fortunate with the, the type of war that we were involved in, you know, that we had all the sort of things that we did at our fingertips. We had the training we did. We were emotionally and physically ready 
to get sent over, you know, I mean, with a group of people that we were well, the best, that, uh, yeah, that everyone trusted, you know, everyone to have that beret has got to have passed the bar, you know what I mean? Like the World War II situation where you could be with, you know, a couple of other people that grew up in the same sort of suburb and you're kind of going off just randomly running into the darkness. It sounds terrifying, especially when you've got like, we've got a very specific group of leaders that were built and lead from the front to do with special forces operations you know not just a random general who's just going we need this portion of a country let's just we just keep throwing men at them maybe they'll submit yeah cool going back to kokoda yeah (laughs) I, 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 i remember you were climbing up one of these huge hills and it just seems to go on as the as the landscape is there and it goes on and it goes on and on and and a local native the kid, was coming yeah. the other way with a guitar. Yeah, they had like two or three of them that were coming and I thought this was just the best. I saw this kid coming down with a guitar and you get chocolate out of the bags and you give it to them or whatever. You sort of see if, they, if they're hungry, you know. I mean, you're obviously not trying to go like overstep the mark, but he came down with this guitar and I was just like, kid, yeah? And he's looked at me with this grin and yeah. And so I've, I gave him chocolate and I sat down and I tried to sort of put it in tune and I remember sitting there just thinking, oh, because I hated folding. I hated going, okay, I'm done. I just, come on, help. I hated that. I still hate asking for help. And um, I sort of thought, what's the longest song that I know? Like, what is the longest song? And I completely disregarded the fact that we're on that massive sort of yama. And I play, I thought, well, Stairway to Heaven, if you stretch that out, you can just keep going Go between the verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, yeah. chorus. No one's going to know how long the live version goes for like 17 minutes. Yeah. I'm fine. I'll just, I'll do that. And so I sat there and played that and never, ever thought of the irony of what I was actually doing with it. It was just literally trying to buy as much time as I could. Um, and it was just, it was just fun. I still look at that picture of me sitting there with a the guitar and it's, with a guitar is kind of the same moment as I have when I sink down used to sink into the water in the ocean, you know, you kind of just disappear. You can quieten the voice inside your head a little. A very surreal moment. Yeah, it was. It was. It was It was really cool. And I mean, it gave everyone that few moments to break away, you know, mentally and emotionally sort of break away from what we're doing. We were doing it with a whole heap of guys who'd been injured, um, like in service. So it was, you know, it kind of gave everyone a bit of a, a moment just to, to step back. So, Damien, you, you keep finding Kokodas, or we'll call them Everests, and <laughs> you've gone into swimming and rally car uh, navigation and snowboarding. I mean, which, which of these particular fields do you especially like and do, are you just continuing to find challenges? Well, like some of them sort of fall into place. I love swimming because I love surfing. Um, but the more I swim, the worse my shoulder gets. So it's kind of a balancing act. And the the rally car navigation, that was um was kind of someone else's dream, to be honest. Um at that stage I my identity, my protected identity had been lifted. So I'd done a section with Ray Martin on sixty minutes and I was marketable enough for us to get support to go and raise awareness using a car. And I get this call <laughs> I'd done all the PR side of it. So you're going to like places, newspapers or whatever, and I'm smiling next to it, you know, doing the whole Sponsor the car or whatever type thing, you know, like raise awareness, commando welfare trust. And that was just my job. And then like two days before we were supposed to leave, I get this phone call of a guy going, hey, mate, we, we, 
we can't go. And he's crying and I'm like, what? And he's like, I can't navigate the car. He was always going to be the navigator. <laughs> and he goes, I can't navigate the car. I'm like, why? He goes, I, I get car sick. <laughs> I'm like, what? And he goes, I should have known. I can't read when I'm on a bus. I'm like, so you didn't think to check about any of the, uh, forget about all of those questions. I need the event organizer's name and number. Just send it through. He's gone, no, no, we'll, we'll, we'll find a way. I said, no, you, we won't find a way. I'll find a way. Send me, the, send me the guy's number through and I'll see what I can do. And we ended up flying me then straight down to Tasmania. I read, the, read a few of the sort of manuals and books. We did some test runs and stuff and I ended up navigating the car and I did that for two or three rallies after it. And I mean, Were these those Porsche Tassie Target things? No, uh, we had a, a Datsun, a 180. On oh, the 180B. Yeah, the so it was, yeah, it, it had HM Gem did great work with it and stuff. And we'd done a lot of stuff, but like I was always more of a surfer than a car guy. So to me, that was just, it was the raising awareness side that was the big bit for me. I've never. And it was something that you could do and is there yeah, anything you can't do? Yeah, it was, it was a bit, yeah. oh, it was kind of like I had to. Like I put myself in that position going, all right, I've got to be good at this so that one, we don't die. And two, this is, you know, that means a lot to him. I've got to give him the best support that I can, you know, and we ideally we want to finish well so that we can, that's the competitive thing. And I, I think that's, for me, that's something that is a common thread in things I've chosen to do. You know, I find it better for people to channel, especially if you're like me, to channel what you're competitive in because the last thing you want to be is competitive over who's the first car to enter the merging lane when you're driving the car. You know what I mean? Like it's, I need to have an outlet for that. And I found there's different things I've done through the through my journey. Like snowboarding, I, I found great just because it made me feel like I was surfing again. You know, it was something that I was in control of and I could do. Yeah, back with nature. Yeah, ultimately you need so much support and chairlifts and people and moving and all of these different bits that to get to the Paralympic level, which I wanted to get to, it was a real uphill battle. You know, and they had border cross was the sport that you had to be in. I broke my back racing in Park City in Utah, you know, and it's only now that I look back that a compression fracture of the L2 is a pretty serious thing. But at the time... In a normal body, let alone one that's already already, had a lot of damage. Yeah, I mean, to me, I was just glad that was the final thing. I'd broken something on every other limb now (laughs) on my back. It's it's a complete picture, isn't it? So, yeah, and I was more worried about the five weeks that I couldn't race for, you know, and then... It got to the stage where I actually had a combo with someone where I was like, look, the last thing I want to do is wake up in a hot... And you know when you're sort of having a combo with someone, I think we're having beers at the time, and you say something and you don't even realise that it's in your subconscious until you say it and you sort of hear yourself saying it and go, oh, I remember I was talking to Amy Purdy and I said to her, I'm like, look, she's an amazing snowboarder. She um and she did Dancing with the Stars in the US and she's a double baloney amputee and she was just amazing, amazing in the whole thing. She then toured with Oprah. She's an amazing person. But we're in the bar sort of talking about stuff and I said, you know, the last thing I want to do is wake up in hospital and have a doctor look at me and say, look, this time you can't learn to walk again. You know, we we're talking about how, like, intense the tracks that we were racing on were. And, um, and yeah, it was... um. I think it was that sort of moment where I sort of thought I got to do something else. And I started looking, when I got back from America that time, I started looking at my purpose for doing things and what what was I doing because I'd sort of, 
I chased the snowboarding dream for a lot of time. A lot of people have put hours and stuff like that. I'd put a lot of effort into it. And I just sort of hit this stage where I was like, okay, I've done so many things for for other people. You know what I mean? Like I've sort of worried way too much in my life about what the status quo is, what everyone's going to think of, like what I'm going to do something that's just for me knowing that no one else's opinion matters. You know, what what would I do then? Like I got to have that sort of conversation with myself of what, what would I do if I was – I was a kid again in school. I've always been a bit of a show pony, so um, mostly in an irritating way, but, yeah, that's just is what it is. Um, and I thought I would I would be an actor. You know, I wanted to when I was in high school. I thought it was, I thought it was great. I had a hard time, but in a, typically acting, you get it wrong more often than you get it right type thing. Like it, there's a lot of failure involved. Um, and I thought, well, I've got that bit covered. When I was young, I didn't quite get it. You know, I, was, I had trouble getting laughed at. You know, I didn't – no one wants to put their heart and soul into something and have it just be horrible, which sometimes it is. And um, so I decided that I wanted to do that. But for another reason, I wanted to make sure that I still had emotions. You know, I'd spent so much of my time, you know, going, you never apologise, you know, that's – you know, did the different sign signs of, of yeah, yeah, the signs of weakness. You know, that whole a sign of weakness, man. The toughest guys I've ever met in my entire life, I've watched break down. You know what I mean? Like so that whole crying is a weakness thing. Uh, yeah, not crying is more the weakness thing. That's you giving in to what people think your emotions should be at the time. Like repressing that's just dangerous. Like it seriously it is. You're repressing you're repressing an emotion of grief, fear, guilt. Or anything like that. That's just a recipe. It's an absolute cocktail for mental health issue. Um, I obviously didn't know that at the time, but so I thought that was you know I'll get into get into acting and see how I actually go at it. You know, I always visualize I'm going to be great. You know, that's my baseline thought. I'm going to be I'm going to be perfect at this. That way, I think personally, I think walking into situations with that mindset makes you make positive decisions. You make all the decisions that essentially shape you to be moving towards the picture of excellence that you see as opposed to looking at the myriad of things that could go wrong. You know, I mean, it's like like snowboarding. Don't run into the tree. Don't run into the tree. Tree. You know what I mean? It's like that that same train of thought and that that was sort of what I went with. So I walked into the acting class like confident and inspired by kids around me. You know, they're waiting tables for five days a week so they can study for four of them and mm. – you know, there's no guarantee that anything's going to come of it. You know, I was kind of set by that stage. And that was, that was the thought with things being like me being complacent, being my biggest enemy. And that's why I, I sort of think now about the, you know, what's next and I've just got to be getting a little bit better. You know, I've, each day sit down, have that moment before I go to bed, when my head's on the pillow take comfort in the fact that I can pick something the day that had me grow as a person, even if it's just resting to make me stronger for tomorrow. There's something I did that's going to help me get better and be doing that move forward because my whole life all I want to do was to work to the point where I could own my own house. You know, and that, that could be, that's like a 35-year pursuit or something like that. I get injured in Afghanistan. I was in Shilbal. I was over there. I've got paid out. I own my own house. I own the car that I'd always dreamed of of owning and I'm not even 30. You know, all of a sudden you've all of these massive life goals that were originally the idea that you were striving for are, are there 
you know, and essentially there's like, what now? What do you, what do you do with it now? And um, I found when I was when I was in that acting class, it was kind of good that I didn't have the stress of needing to land a job. I didn't need to, you know, I could just relax and yeah, kind of trundle along. And like, there's times as well where you can't. You know, I mean, PTSD is a really, it's it's really difficult to explain. You know, especially the way that it happens to to different people. You know, and the way that it, it impacts me is a, you know, it can sometimes it can dead set be impossible to be doing sort of anything. So some days you'd be going to class, some days you wouldn't, and you're going through that process. And I'm slowly working out. I think how to iron it out. And we're nearly twelve years down the track. Twelve years next month. You know, so it's um, and it's one of the one of those sort of odd things that, like, to give you an example of how it can hit you and it's it's done it a few times like a few really major ones but i was in the shower and i was just cleaning my ears and i had my eyes shut and i don't know how i got back there or how i went but it felt something felt wrong it's just like i don't know i don't know what this is i don't know and i just felt my system just starting to shut down like my vision was almost tunneling and uh, for the next five hours i was useless I couldn't like I couldn't focus if something was on TV. Like I could see the TV, but I couldn't do anything with it. it. Was like in my mind, it was like I was a vegetable. I was monotone. I couldn't change anything that I did, speaking wise, and there was nothing that could drag me away from it. You know, everything was everything was heavy. Breathing was hard. You know, I was really weird, and that's one of the sort of it's hap- it's happened a few different times. It's been a couple of different times managing. It's one of those things you just try and deal with it. If you can, and I guess hope, you know, because then typically it's never when you're expecting it that something goes wrong. But um, yeah, I'd, I'd sort of wrestle with different stages of what I was doing through the side of the acting. But I got a really cool break one day when, um, again, why I should get the tattoo that says lucky. I, um, I was in class and I'd done a thing. Turns was making fun one day that we were overseas of one of the songs from Team America. So I tried to sing it. And I tried to use a little like prop, you know. I had so I had so I've always got something that means a lot to me. At the time, I had a similar sort of thing. This one sort of looks like dog tags, but it's something that my um my missus gave me that says "You're my hole in one." And every time I'm doing something, if I drift away or feel any pressure with it, I put it kind of in my mouth and put it between my teeth, and it takes me back to the time when I'm sitting at the table with her and my daughter, and she gave it to me. And then all of a sudden, everything I kind of get back to, again. Yeah, I get back to square one, and it's all right. We did all right. Go, and then I can sort of do it. And I was using something like a similar sort of thing to that as as a prop for this thing. And I just I broke down and started crying. And I tried for like a year and a half or two years. I tried to cry in a class because mm. that's what you know. That's acting. That's drama. And it's not. You know. I mean, people spend. 99.9 of the time, 99.9% of the time trying to hide emotions. Why are you going to show yours? You know, I mean, it just makes it look overdone. And I was in the class and that just, it cracked me. And the guy who was teaching us, Aaron Glenane, he just goes, can you come and see me after class? And I'm like, yeah. And I think, I thought he was just going to check on me and just say, you're, you're right. like, that was pretty real. And um, he just goes, look, there." Nikki Barrett's casting something now um, that you might want to just get your manager to give her a call over it. I'm like, okay, no worries. Like, 
it was Nikki Barrett. She cast, she cast like Gatsby and a bunch of other things. Like she's a huge casting director. And yeah, I, t- I spoke to my manager about it. He sent an email and then a, a couple of days later I had a screen test for it. I got the Bravo Company line group of orders and I'm kind of like, oh, Bravo Company. I was in Bravo Company. This might be meant to be. I try, like trying to not have huge expectations or put pressure on myself so that I did something weird. Um, and when I went in, I screen tested. I did it in an American accent but didn't really think this could be anything. You know what I mean? I didn't think too much of it. And then he calls me when um, I was at Coogee. I was uh, down walking along the thing out the front of where the pavilion is now and he's, he's like, man, you landed the role. I'm like, you're kidding. He goes, yeah, your name's Ralph Morgan. That's, you know, and I'm like, yeah, okay, that's, that's really cool. That's big, and he goes, yeah. you don't sound so excited. And I'm like, why would I be excited? And he goes, mate, Mel Gibson's directing. Oh. And I, the, I then proceeded to go into the amputee happy dance, which is extremely top heavy, but is a very, very awkward dance, I think is the only way of saying it. So I'm like yelling and screaming and stuff down there and just like, yeah, it was, it was a huge moment of like, you, I think your world then goes into, so what, what have I got to do? Okay, Mel Gibbs is directing it. How's it going to be? I've got to be good enough to turn up you know with a great director you've got to be on your a game the minute that you get out there and this is my first rodeo it wasn't until they said look no wants to meet with you that it really hit me how big of a deal it was um that we went to fox studios walked in with like two of the producers sitting there and um we're sitting there having a chat with them and stuff like that and i look on the wall and there's like it's Hugo Weaving, Vince Vaughn, Sam Worthington, like Luke Bracey for Astorani. There's all of these guys' faces just on the wall and there's mine sitting in the middle of it. And I was just – it got very, very real very quickly at that stage. And then they sent me a copy of the script and I was just like – it's an amazing – it was an amazing experience but amazing sort of – like Andrew Garfield as a lead's just – he was phenomenal. And, I mean, it's kind of – it's a good – it's good to have someone who's doing as who's killing it the way that he was because all I was interested in was getting a good enough thing for him to feed off to have the performance he should have had. You know, I mean, he got nominated for an Oscar for that. But, yeah, it was – um, and it just was – to me, looking back, it was kind of cathartic because naturally my guy is the guy who gets his legs blown off, which is, um, you know, I mean – great range as an actor. I can play a war veteran who's an amputee. That's um I guess one of those one of those things that will work in my favor. But yeah, it was well kind of it's good to just be part of that process. But if you've seen the movie, it's called Hacksaw Ridge. Oh um, yes, yes, everyone's yeah, seen that. Yeah, it's a it's a really good film, but if you watch specifically like being a part of telling that story is a huge deal and it was just as a as an army guy is just phenomenal to be a part of. But also to I, – I prepared all of my guys when it was coming out. I said, look, guys, there's a movie that I've done. We shot this scene, which is a pretty harrowing scene. Um, if you look at the shorts, when Andrew Garfield's going, I'm going to get you home, he's talking to me. So I'm the guy that's oh, okay. screaming and I crying. remember that. Yeah. And Up I'm, on the ridge. Yeah. Yeah. So um, – but in the scene, obviously, I get hit and it's pretty realistic what they did with the prosthetics. You know, I mean, it looks, it looks great. Like it's – and but I told all my everyone who was close to me, I'm like, look, I took this role in this film. It's about a guy getting blown up, and this was uh, an extra one for it. But 
they asked me if I knew anyone who could come on to be the medical advisor of how people had their pouches and their different things and stuff like that. Did I know anyone? So I got to get the medic who kept me alive in oh, Afghanistan. Yeah. I gave him a call and said, are you busy? Are you in Sydney? He goes, why? I said, Mel Gibson's doing a movie. Do you want to come and be the medical advisor? And he goes. Yes, please. He go, yeah, well, he kind of said, look, man, you, you're fucking with me, aren't you? And I'm like, well, that's a pretty elaborate hoax. For me to like be calling you up and saying like randomly when he's in town, Mel Gibbons doing a movie and wants you as that. So no, I'm not. Like seriously, do you want it or not? And he's like, yeah, man. Like hell yeah. And that was, that was a cool moment for me to be able to at least give, give back, something yeah. something back. But he, on the day that we did my scene, he they had someone else come in. He couldn't sort of go through it, um, which was. And it was funny, but because like when we did got dressed up for the first day, we got dressed up all of the stuff, and we're sitting on the hill, and it starts raining, and Mel's walking back, and it took every ounce of my strength not to look at him and go, "We didn't get dressed up for nothing," <laughs> you know, like pop out a Braveheart line to him or something like that. Yeah. And I'm glad that I didn't. I mean, everyone I've told about it, like especially people on the set, thought, "Man, that would have been awesome. You should have said it." I'm like, he's had 20 years of it. That's probably enough. But um, yeah, we. Read that ended up going through the scene, which was it was interesting to live it, to live through what you know, and in my interpretation would be like, I guess, of being in that situation in the day and different things. I mean, people have seen the photos, I've posted some of them online, and I've had people complain and go, you sh Why are you posting photos from when you were hurt overseas? And I'm like, I'm wearing World War II garb. What do you think we wore? Mm. We're in Afghanistan in 2009, that stuff is. Wildly out of date. Um, but, yeah, it, yeah, it's neither here nor there. But the thing that I think really gets me with it, I told the boys and hey, one of them was there with his missus. She came in. She was pregnant when she came into hospital and Chaz came to visit. She was great. And she saw me when I first got to ICU and he was on the ground and had his hands dirty like when, when I got hit. Both of them looked at it and it's a pretty horrific scene. Like the guy who I play, the character's getting his ass kicked and it looks horrible. It's really messy. They looked at each other in the, when they were actually watching it. They went to the movies to see it. He turned to her and she sort of, she goes, look, he was way worse. Like, sorry, he, he turned to her and said he was way worse when I saw him. Like when it happened, it was way worse than that. And she goes, yeah, even when I saw him in ICU, it was way worse than that. You know, and I guess that if anyone wants an idea of what it's actually like to be in that sort of moment, that's, you know, if the, if the movie looking that bad doesn't do it justice, I think it gives you at least a broad understanding of how intense it is to be a guy on the ground in a situation where it's a real life and death type situation, you know, like the, the real nuts and bolts of it. And, I mean, yeah, that, and you've certainly been there. Yeah, well, I th yeah, I, I mean... I think more physically I was there, but and that's one of the one of the sort of battles that I have is, you know, there's there's guys who have to live with living with the physical side of it is easy because you can see it, you can touch it, it's a material thing. You know what I mean? Living with the mental side of people who've seen it, and that's the reason why. Like I still wake up at night and I don't know why I'm awake. I don't know why I'm sweating. I don't know why I'm paranoid that there's someone near me. I, I have no idea. It happens reasonably regularly, but um. More often than not, when I'm sleeping in a different room or something, I get really bad with it. But that's just, I think that's one of them. I don't see anything. I never have, 
flashbacks that I know of. You know, I mean, the only one was that shower thing, which I didn't even know if it's a flashback. Um, but yeah, they're, they've all become parts of, I think, managing the equation. You know, sometimes that's the best thing that you can do when you're in one of those, like, I, I guess, a circumstance like mine. You're just, you're just trying to manage it. It's the same way anyone is doing doing things in their life. You know, you're just trying to manage it with the things that you can control and what what you can do. And I think after after Hacksaw Ridge, I it's it was a it's really odd because you're there with like guys who you've watched in so many different movies just be absolutely amazing on set doing it. Like you, I was talking to Vince Vaughn about when he thought the right time to have kids were. You know, like, and we're just, you're talking with Sam Worthington about what he thought doing the voiceover for Call of Duty was like, and we're having conversations about stuff like that. And you know, everyone's literally just having the time of their life. But when you look at you look at guys, it was such a big deal for so many guys to be on that movie. And then there's it's my first film. You know, I'd done a short before that where I virtually had to do nothing. You know, it was. You certainly landed a marlin, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and I didn't even know that I was fishing. Like that's the thing. I was just I just knew I was on a boat. But, you know, it was it was it crazy. And I mean one of those like a, a phenomenal experience, but it's kinda like that scratch the itch. You know what I mean? Like it had it was like oh I could sort of step and step back away from having to do that. You know what I mean? So it was a really, it was a really odd thing, and I don't think after it was something that I was gonna consistently pursue. You know what I mean? I, I like I, I still, I still acted a touch after it. But there were bits of it. I had, um, I have a pretty good relationship still with Bill Mechanic, who he was the, he was the head of Fox when they, um, the five years he was there, like three of them, they had the highest grossing film. <laughs> like that's, he did that. Like he was there in the Avatar Titanic. They used that through all through all of that side. Not Avatar, yeah, but de- definitely the Titanic and around sort of that thing. He tells this great story about Celine Dion walking in because they didn't have the sound done for Hacksaw Ridge when like two weeks out or two months out. Sorry, they needed a new sound tech to come in and do stuff. I'm like, man, that's kind of cutting it fine. We've got release dates. There's a lot of stuff riding on this, and we're having a coffee in Bondi, and he was like, all right, we had literally two weeks. Till Titanic comes out, I'm sitting in my office and I've still got the eight-track tape sitting on my shelf just to prove that anything's possible because they had no lead track for it. And then Celine Dion comes in with the part will go on and she'd recorded it in a garage. You know, she walks in with the manager and they're freaking out. Like you said, literally on the inside, he's just uh, doing that. And then she hands in the tape and it was, you know, the the rest is history. And, like, I remember I had some really cool combos with him about how unfair that world can sort of be, you know, like it's not always performance based, you know, sometimes there's three guys who, and there's two guys who are just as talented as the other guy. This guy just fits that role better. He looks the part more or there's all these different cruel twists. And I think with the, with the ones that I'd suffered in the snowboarding world, I sort of, I sort of wanted to try and find something, something that I could do that, would really let me work on me while I was doing something that I could also do competitively, you know, something that would make scratch that competitive itch while it still let me 
I think, have something to grind towards and work towards. And I'd go up and randomly on a Friday afternoon, my dad would go out and play golf at Magenta Shores in the Central Coast, which is if you can play golf there, you can play golf anywhere. Like, honestly, it's the hardest course that, uh, yeah, I mean, for a double amputee, there's so many moguls and stuff like that on it. There's just every single lie. You never, you rarely, very rarely get a flat one. There's a lot of bunkers, which sand, as we've said, isn't exactly my funnest thing. But I had a thing with a prosthetist to show me a new type of foot that helps people walk. I have felt about you can sort of lean over your feet. You change where your weight line is. And I thought, I can play golf with this. I might be able to swing the way that I used to before I was hit. Like I could always hit the ball reasonably well. And then I went out for a round of golf with it, with my dad again. And I'm like, okay, that's it. I've got it. All right. And then the next week we went out again and I was like, okay, I wonder what other amputees could do this. I wonder who, what other worlds there are that are, yeah, okay, so how does this do it? And people would tell me about, um, like, the legends of it. Like Jeff Nicholas, we, I just got back from playing. Me, I, He's sort of my travel buddy. He's 55, I think, you'd have to be pushing that. Jeff, if you're younger than that and you ever hear this, sorry, but you behave like you're 55. And, um, yeah, we, like, we fly away. He qualified for a senior's master's, like a senior's major, sorry, last year in Scotland. You know, I mean, that's how talented these guys are with like he's, he's missing a leg you know so not a proper disability but still in its own right it's mm. reasonable he's missing a foot it's not two feet but you know he's well on his way but I mean he qualified for a seniors major you know that to be playing against like guys like that was sort of my goal when it when it happened I've always had this lofty idea I tend to still believe that I can do it it doesn't really matter what happens I honestly think that that's where I'll make the right decisions when it comes to the amount of effort and dedication I have to put into it I want to be the best adaptive golfer on the planet and that with that comes a lot of hard work and I think some of the things lessons that you can take out of my time in the army like you how you how you learned to shoot specific things that you were doing how you took your mind off other things that were happening the type of work ethic you need what you need to work on you know, how much time to spend on those one percenters and when work's being effective. When you're flogging a dead horse and when you're actually get something, getting something beneficial out of it. I mean, and that was, it was three years ago that I that I made that decision. I was going to, I think my handicap was 24 or something like that at the time. The next year, my handicap dropped into, um, I think I was about 15 or 16 the next year, uh, the next year that passed is at uh, I think eleven or something, and now I'm at six. Yeah. So I'm on the right trajectory to get where I need to go. Um, and yeah, I was pretty close. Like Shane Luke, who's an absolute legend of amputee golf in Australia. Everyone knows about the guy from Bankstown who used to take his leg off to play golf. Mm. I beat him in the last round up in Redcliffe. So I'm on the I'm on the right path to get to get where I'm going with it. But um. It's still, still one of those things. I honestly think like it's about five. Like I took the time to sit back and try and assess myself, you know, and go, okay, so what are my weak points? And that t- it takes, you know, I used to you'd go and do corporate talks and I'd tell people about that. You know, I'd explain to people about f- trying to find those things, like those little idiosyncrasies about your personality. That you, how, how can I get better each day? 
how can I do that one thing that's going to improve what I do each day? And that was, and that was that was sort of the conclusion I came to was I, I get lazy. If I know how to do something, that's what I'll sort of work on rather than the bits that I'm not great at. Like it, it just fit every single sort of thing. You wish the biggest decision that I've ever made in my entire life prior to that was for the exact same reasons. You know, I joined the army because it was a it was a huge it was the polar opposite of the way that I was living, of how I was trying to personally get the best out of myself. And that's the exact same reason why I, I looked at what was I what am I what was I doing well and what can I work on when I actually like joined the army and what made that successful? How can I take the lessons that I learned there and apply them to something so random and so different and then make it successful? And that that I think is in that ends where the challenge lies when it comes to me is really implementing those things, not just explaining that they're there or showing people that you can use them. It's actually putting that into practice and making it work. So, Damien, what's next for you now? You've number one. Well, number one, yes. Like in the immediate future, I think world number one is probably at least five years away. Um, by the end of the year, I'll be in the top 75. So this year... In the net, I'm ranked probably 50th, but that's with a handicap involved, and I, that doesn't really mean that much to me. Um, so I'm in the I'm in the easily I'm in the top 200. I think I'm 160 something at the moment. When the results come through for the tournament that I was just in, I'll crack 140. Then in three months, when two events that I went horribly in two years ago come off the ranking scale, I'll be in the top 100. So I should like realistically. Um, I should be in the top 75, if not top 50, by the end of the year. Um, so that's that's got me well on my way. But I think in the the main thing that I really want to do is I know the importance of the people that are around you. You know, I've I've been through situations that have really reinforced how much you can rely on them and how important. Uh, a solid and stable family life is and I've got like a I've got a I've got a two-year-old girl who's just the absolute she's the best she's honestly so so good I like I love every single thing there is about being her dad it's the best it's a privilege to be able to do and I think that's another thing that golf at least keeps me healthy so that I can make sure that I'm there my heart's still going when she's um when she's going through all the things that she's going to do growing up and we've got another we've got another little boy who's due in in June this oh, year. Congratulations. So, it's thank, wonderful. Thanks, man. I've, yeah, I'm just, I had no idea. Yeah, again, I'm like Captain Lucky, like seriously, missed the luckiest person on the face of, face of earth ever. I mean, I survived, I survived the bomb through skill and some other things. There's still a bit of luck. The land, the role that I landed in movie and so many different things have just kind of fallen into my lap along the way, where some of them you've got to be prepared. Luck's when being prepared meets opportunity. But I still keep getting these great roles. Like the little the little girl I've got's perfect. I've, my partner is someone who we grew up in the same street. We have so many things in common, except she hates sport, which is kind of convenient because then I get the, my me time when I'm watching sport. It's awesome. Um, and then yeah, we've got the the little one on the way, which kind of gives me. You know, I've got to be the best version of me for them, and part of that is making sure that there's. There's bits in check. I, I find I function better as a person when I have something to strive for. And it's got to be something that, like, 
something that's more than out of the realm of what you'd standardly think. I don't want to be my club champion. I don't even, it's not just the best in Australia either. It's the best anywhere. And it doesn't bother me whether I'm playing someone who's got like a headache or whatever. I still want to be better than him. And that's until I get there, it's it's one of those things, little sort of steps at a, at a time, you know what I mean? Grind away the way that I can, which just seems to be, it seems to be going all right, but it's changed, I think, the way that I behave and how I work when it comes to my family and how organised we are and the way that the way that we do things. And I'm really lucky that, you know, our whole family play golf, so they're all really supportive. And I think my missus has seen the change in me. There was a lot of years when I was injured that it's a pretty dark, there's some pretty dark sort of times, you know, of the what nows and, you know, when you're sitting there watching time pass, wondering what you're going to do with the rest of your life, it's a really, really complex place to sit going, what now? What am I doing? Where to now? Well, well, Damien, everything you've been through, you're such a force for positive thinking and action and whether it be snowboarding and now the golf, what this country does owe to you is a great debt of gratitude for your sacrifice and your inspiration and being there for all the other guys and just being the best person you can be. And you are certainly all of that. Yeah. And, uh, and, mate, as I say, it's just a lovely thing now that you can focus with your family because, as you know, as a parent, the greatest love you have in the world now is for your child. It's greater than your wife. It's greater than yourself. It's greater than your mates. And you now have that as well. So... I wish you well, and I know you will continue to succeed until you are number one in whatever you decide. Yeah, I will do. I'll, I'll come on again and I'll chew your ear off about what it, yeah. <laughs> the same ins, in, ins and outs of what it took to get there. I mean, thank you so much for the for having me on, but I think to me it's a real honour to have ever been able to wear this country's badge. You know, I kind of – to be able to serve in the military, to be able to be – a part of something like that, you know, that's part of the the Australian Army that are at the pointy end of everything they do. It's just an honour to have been involved in it, you know what I mean? And it's the least I can do to try and live up to that name, you know, to do my best to be in that position. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it is. I kind of look at it, it's an extreme privilege, I think, to have the opportunity to to do those things. And I think when... Yeah, it is. It's it's one of those things that keeps really gives me a huge sense of satisfaction, and I think that's why I really like what you guys do with with the podcast and stuff like that. It just gives people a chance. Like I'm going to leave here happy that people want to know the story of an an old soldier who got hurt 12 years ago. You know what I mean? And the different things. It it's really great for me. So I like what you do with with everyone else and giving them the opportunity to to step out and and tell their stories and to your audience who, who care about that. I mean, it's just it's just awesome. It means a lot to every single veteran that we can sort of stand as one as a country after after the different things that we've had that are not always ideal situations, but we can always stand with our hand held high. We are grateful to Damien for coming down to Sydney to appear on the show. To find out more about the June 2010 helicopter crash, Listen to some of our previous podcasts, all in Season 4. Catch Thomas K's interview with Survivor of That Crash, Number 100, Gary Wilson.
in the three months I'd lost half my body weight. I was below 50 kilos and with this nurse put me back in bed. She goes, Mr. Wilson, you're in a helicopter crash. And listen to my interviews with number 54, H volume 5. But the suffering and the extent of injuries that the remainder of the boys had that lived in that crash, it was just fucking horrific. And number 92, Dean Parkinson, volume 2. We got hit from four sides all at once, deafening. And for more on Angus's time in the 1st Commando Regiment, listen to his interview in Season 2. Number 29, Todd Vale. I knew I was in a bad way because I couldn't feel from my waist downwards. I was paralysed. There was blood. My arm, my right arm, which felt like it was sticking out, was draped over my head and there was blood tricking down into my eyes. Subscribe to never miss an audio podcast, video podcast or episode of our video documentary series, Life After Service. And check out our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thank you for listening, or watching, and lest we forget. <laughs>